VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, December the 15th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program on this Come On With It edition. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86 26. So let's check in on Team Guzhu at the WTG Masters Grand Slam of Curling. Yesterday got an 8-3 win. Nice bounce back victory. So they're now 2-1. Beat Team Schweiler yesterday. They get one of their nemesis today though. Brandon Botcher and his rink this afternoon. Alright. Interestingly, I don't know if you've ever been to New York City and or to Madison Square Gardens. One of the most popular and famous venues in the world I would suggest. It was on this day in 1925. The first hockey game at Madison Square Garden. New York City. The Montreal Canadiens beat the New York American 3 1. How about that? And, you know, we've been talking about silly season and the winter offseason for Major League Baseball and chasing all the big free agents and the enormous sums of money being spent on these players. So, you know, the Otani deal, right? Ten years, $700 million. On this date in 1980, New York Yankee Dave Winfield became the highest played player in Major League Baseball. Ten years, $15 million. $15 million over 10 years was the highest paid player in 1980. Not so much today. All right. Uh, good luck and fingers crossed for a successful season for the folks out at Marble Mountain. Working hard to make it more of a year-round offering, and they need persistent, consistent cold days to make some snow. So no idea really when the hill is going to open, but there's going to be an increased cost to ski or snowboard this year. The day lift increase about 10 bucks. Uh, the pass is going to be up around 100 bucks, so it's $579 for youth, $749 for adults, but of course, now, in good news, the Black Mariah lift, first time it's going to be operational for five years. So three full chair lifts in operation out there. And they do indeed need some cold weather while the rest of the folks are probably thinking that we can do without the cold. But fingers crossed for a good season at Marble. Looking forward to getting out there. Every time I hear or see or read anything about Marble Mountain, the first thing that pops in my mind is not just skiing and have a bit of fun and a little apres ski activity. It's the Green Report. And, you know, we're still waiting to see for a progress update, the status of what the Green Report continues to mean to the provincial government. Remember, when they uh, brought forward that committee led by Moya Green, it was going to be the blueprint or the roadmap for fiscal and economic stability and prosperity. What's happened? I really don't know. You know, Marble, they talked about selling it off. Who can bring forward a, a, a uh, pardon me, a business proposal to operate Marble without a government subsidy. And then I think notably it's the NLC. Now there's going to be a big rush on the Liquor Corp over the holiday season, of course, but one of the key recommendations was to sell it off. Now it didn't really itemize what that actually meant, sell it off in full. And of course it doesn't mean that the province won't get significant revenues from the NLC, given the fact there's a liquor excise tax in place. And then another item that continues to pop in my mind uh, regarding the Green Report is the recommendation to sell off or divest from our oil and gas equity stakes. Or I guess no gas equity stake, but anyway. There you go. All right. So as the call continues, Newfoundland Power is putting forward what they call an elevated, elevated risk that electricity demand could surpass supply this winter. So one of the three generating units at Holyrood is down until mid-March. The Stephenville gas turbine is out of service until February. Obviously, the unreliability, that is Muskrat Falls, yet to do that 900-megawatt test. Then Hydro says, nothing really to worry about. They're promising that it will be a normal season this year. So Newfoundland Power warns of the potential for rolling blackouts. And Hydro says, 
not so fast. So we'll see what the winter brings, but that is an obvious concern for the rate payers here in the province. And then moving forward, I tell you what, I'm still pretty massively confused about some of these issues yet to be fully evaluated by Hydro and the provincial government regarding the wind proposals. Now, Jennifer Williams, the CEO at Hydro, says there is a place for wind with our, within our grid. And likely so. I mean, they're talking about needing to double capacity, double supply by 2050. I'm not so sure because we've been down this path of the forecasted demand on the system and consequently brought us forward the $13 billion plus price tag at Muskrat Falls. But that's what they're evaluating. So here's some of the questions. Now, we have no earthly idea what the integration with the system means for World Energy GH2 or Everwind, the only two companies talking about selling power back to the grid. And there's enormous power going to be available. So John Risley says the winter months, they'll have about 400 megawatts to sell back to the grid. Upon completion of all the phases, they're talking about having a full gigawatt available. We don't know what they'll pay to buy power in the summer. We have no idea what they'll uh, what we'll have to pay for provision of power from World Energy or Everwind in the winter. But here's one of the questions that pops into my mind. Of course, this will be evaluated in front of the PUB where it belongs. But... How do they even arrive at these numbers? So if they're building the turbines to produce the hydrolysis, pardon me, the electrolysis, hydrogen, ammonia, and export. So how do they arrive at the number? Because if they're going to secure markets wherever, northeastern United States, here possibly domestically, somewhere in Europe, maybe Germany, I don't know. But how do they come up with that number? So are they purpose uh, building this project for the export of hydrogen and ammonia? And if so, What's to say that they can't create an expansive market to not have all this available power? That's got to be a pretty complicating factor for hydro to come up with how that integration looks, reliance on that winter supply from these wind projects versus whatever other recommendations are being considered. Of course, and one of the ones that Hatch uh, recommended was a 150 megawatt generator, diesel generator at Holyrood. So that's the big question for me is how do they, have they already considered that the market is going to be narrow as opposed to the potential to use all the wind-generated power for the hydrogen and ammonia and export for wherever the market might be? So still a lot of confusing things, on, certainly in, in my mind anyway on that front, but if you want to tackle it. Let's go. So the Public Accounts Committee has requested the Auditor General to do an audit of the personal care and long-term care homes, and Denise Hanrahan has agreed to do exactly that. Still not a whole lot of information coming out from the committee that was struck by, by the province to look at personal care homes and long-term care facilities, whether it be protection of the residents and some of the violence that we've seen and the stories we've heard coming from some of these care homes. And also one of the big ones for many families is knowing that at some point in the future, if we can't get home care right and the concept of aging in place, there may indeed be the need for many to enter into a long-term care facility because of the medical need requirements. The problem for some families is the heartbreak knowing that mom and dad may indeed have to be separated because they have varying medical requirements. In the province of Nova Scotia, they figured it out by legislation. They are not separating couples. We still see it in this province. And the province tells us, uh, the Minister of Health and Community Services, Mr. Osborne, Minister Osborne, says they're working towards trying to figure it out. He said there's no need to announce that they figured it out before they actually achieved that goal. But that's one of those stories that when you hear them, you know what it must mean to the mom, the dad, and the family. You know, the heartbreak associated with 50, 60 years together, and now consequently in your golden years to have to be separated because of medical requirements. I know it's not an easy solution to arrive at, but it's critically important. But uh, uh, Denise Hanrahan and the Auditor General's office will indeed be conducting that particular audit of those care homes. All right. I guess I'm full of confusion here this morning.
One of the issues that I think we still haven't firmly wrapped our minds around is exactly what the $13 billion, the initial price tag for National Dental Care Program, $4.4 billion every year thereafter. We've, you know, I was confused, and thankfully some of the listeners filled in the blanks when we talked about exactly what would be offered. And here's one more time I run down the list. Preventative services, cleaning, polishing, sealants, fluoride, diagnostic services, examinations and x-rays, restorative services, including fillings, crowns, and dentures, root canals and treatments, uh, removal of some partial dentures, so deep scaling, uh, extractions, all of those things. But now what is, was going to be pretty predictable is now the provinces are potentially looking at their own provincial dental care program and maybe putting the burden on the federal program, then consequently expanding the cost of the program. So some of the provinces are saying the quiet part out loud. They're saying that the federal government will be the first payer, the, uh, pardon me, the payer of first resort, and the province will be the payer of last resort. You know that's an attractive potential for the provincial governments across the country to reduce spending in health care, in this case in dental care. So the federal minister of health, uh, Mark Holland, says uh, this is the program meant to fill the gaps and is not to replace existing pro- pardon me, provincial programs. But you know full well that some provinces will indeed look at their plan and maybe offload some of the financial burden to the feds, and there's nothing in the document that says that the provinces can't do it necessarily. Then it's the concerns about whether or not some private insurer, insurers are going to also step away, corporate and or individual, to say, well, there's a program out there for me, and so why am I paying? So, you know, it sounds conceptually like a very good idea because the impact of poor dental health brings upon a bunch of other physical health ailments, cardiovascular and worsening diabetes and otherwise, but you know that I don't know what this province is doing when they evaluate our dental care program, but the sneaking suspicion that means been said out loud in Ontario, said out loud in PEI, and I would imagine there's some consideration ongoing in our province as well. Okay, what are we doing out there, Dave? Let's dig into the K-12 education system a little bit. So back in March of 2009, the government brought forward what they call the Inclusive Education Initiative. So students with varying uh, different learning styles, abilities, experiences, and backgrounds, all in one classroom. Conceptually, it makes all the sense in the world, right? Why wouldn't it? It's good for students to have an understanding of their, their fellow students and the fellow age group, whether it be with learning disabilities, whether it be on the spectrum, whether it be with behavioral issues. The problem is, is that when you hear stories from teachers about whether or not they've been attacked by a student and or the amount of time they spend in the run of a day focusing in on a handful of students, a handful of children, and really not having the time to devote to the other classmates, that's a problem. You know, I wonder what that relationship has with the declining math scores, science scores, and reading scores. I don't know if there's a direct correlation, but it stands to reason that there may indeed be an absolute relationship here. I don't know if it's a straight line, but absolutely has to have some impact. So teachers far and wide are telling these exact stories. You know, there's four or five kids who really need some additional help and support and or try to control their, their behavior and their temper throughout the run of the day, and the rest of the class left to their own devices. So even when we talk about kids who need additional supports in any subject matter and or behaviorally related, but children with exceptionality is not being challenged. So there has been some good ideas floated by a couple of teachers here in the province. They've been recognized with national awards to try to ensure that children who do need to be challenged are challenged. So, you know, I hate to say that the inclusive model is conceptually sound but fundamentally flawed, but it seems to me it is. So I don't know what the an- where the answer lies. You know, people will bemoan the closure of the school for the deaf, for instance. And then, of course, there's the facility school that takes on some of these, I'll call it, problematic 
youth. But where do we go from here? Because it's fine for the minister responsible at this moment, Crystalyn Howell, to say that education will see some sort of transformation. I don't know how seriously the province is taking that most recent report from PISA, very clearly outlining the declining scores, and they are deeply troubling. They should be for all of us. But what's that relationship with the inclusive model? Because we've had a long time to evaluate how successful it is since March of 2009. Here we are in December of 2023. And the unfortunate reality is it's not working as, as it's intended. Now, whether that's a staffing issue, which the NLTA seems to think it is, and they're probably right. They're the folks on the front lines. They know exactly what's going on day to day in the operations of a school. So while we have all the focuses in on health care and attracting and recruiting and retaining professionals, we do need to have a heightened focus on the education system. We just simply do. Now, bringing forward this most recently announced think tank, you know, there's a never-ending wave of task force, task force uh, forces, and summits and think tanks and the like. I think the problems have been very clearly, uh, problems have been very clearly outlined. You know, it really is time for action. Jim Din, for instance, says that this think tank is basically a delay tactic, and we just can't afford it because we have up, we're right up against the massive problems regarding outcomes in school. So whether it be learning loss experienced during the pandemic and or the downward trend since 2003 on the math, reading, and science scores, Think Tank, I think we know where the problems lie. The question is, what are we going to do about it and how quickly we're going to attend to it? What do you think? All right. I think we're anticipating a call today from uh, a gentleman who's got some concerns with the most recent stories regarding the St. John's City budget and funding for Metrobus. So Metrobus was in the black, some $5 million surplus this year. Ridership is absolutely huge. So the increase in ridership has meant more revenue, and consequently the, need, the lack of a need for some $1.4 million coming from the city for operations at Metrobus. So we'll see and try to hear and understand their concerns. I suppose it's all about accessibility. You know, with the ridership that's gone all the way to some, what is it, over 4 million riders this uh, last fiscal year? Encouraging. Because public transit is good for a variety of reasons, and new buses are coming in June, and there's trying to expand the Mutter Bus on Demand <coughs> program and the zip routes that have been created. But we'll hear from the folks who are following along with these public transport-related stories and their concerns to get a better understanding when we have a chance to speak with them here this morning. A couple of very quick ones before we get to you. So the gun control bill, Bill C-21, was introduced back in May of 2022. It has now passed through the Senate and awaiting royal assent. So the big features here is a cement freeze on handgun sales, increased penalties for firearm trafficking, and try to attend to what is a growing concern are these ghost guns. Plastic guns can be printed by a 3D printer. Easy to do. All you have to do is download uh, some program from the Internet, plug it into your printer, make it gone, right? Unbelievable stuff. Now, some of the amendments that were very controversial that were brought forward, and they were many. Remember when the government came out with their initial list of some 1,500 uh, firearms that would be banned, and then quietly, without public announcement, the list grew. So there was plenty of pushback from some gun advocacy groups across the country about saying that you know law-abiding hunters, for instance, would be punished by this bill. They basically said any shotgun or rifle that could uh, accommodate five rounds or more would be banned. Some of the things have gone by the wayside. It's good, I think, for the government to focus in on handguns and firearm trafficking and the like. Some of it, I feel, still think, goes too far for some gun 
users, hunters, and otherwise, sports shooters or whatever the case may be, but it has made its way through the Senate and now is waiting to become law. If you want to take that on, we can do exactly that. And then obviously the concerns that people have with the federal government buyback program and the like, so it got through the Senate pretty easily, a vote of 60 to 24, and now we're waiting for that particular BC, uh, Bill C-21 to become law. Okay. Uh, very last one before we get to you. I want to say good morning, congratulations to the folks behind Sharing the Harvest and the folks at the Newfoundland Labrador Outfitters Association. So there were some food banks that were willing to take the donation of moose meat and what have you, but they didn't have the freezer to keep and maintain the quality. And so when asked, the folks at the uh, Newfoundland Labrador Outfitters Association and their executive director, Corey Foster, said, okay, we can accommodate. So they delivered a freezer to the Single Parents Association. They delivered one to Connections for Seniors. They'd already had some five freezers in their past that they'd made donations on. So bravo. We know the demands at the food banks. Everyone is unfortunately painfully aware of the stories. And now, through the kindness of the Outfitters Association and the folks behind Sharing the Harvest, more food banks will be able to accept the moose meat. And we know the high protein and the top quality nature of moose. Many people who will go to the food bank will be just tickled pink to be able to go home with a couple of moose sausages or ground. I think they actually just ground, ground up the moose for the uh, contribution and donation to the food banks. So bravo to everyone behind the Outfitters Association and the folks at Sharing the Harvest. That's excellent news. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on line number one this morning. Say good morning to Dr. Russell Williams. He is an associate professor of political science at Memorial University, currently on research leave, which, which he spent some of his time doing work for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, looking at living wage concerns here in this province, and he joins us on line number one. Good morning, Dr. Williams. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for having me on. Happy to have you on. This is pretty important stuff. When we know, you know, high re- interest rates and inflation and cost of living pressures, these stories are important to paint a very clear picture for the provincial government. And all I would suggest municipal governments as well is how we approach and try to f- fill the gap or try to close the divide between what they make and what they need to make to actually make ends meet. To get to the numbers first, let's talk about the methodology, how you came up with the need for, say, for instance, $24.20 per hour in the eastern region of the province. What's the methodology? Yeah, so uh, the living wage is a measure that's used uh, elsewhere in Canada. It's used all over the world right now to try and figure out how much a sort of representative average household needs to earn in order to just sort of keep their heads above water economically. So basically what we do is we, we, cr- we create a budget for uh, a kind of an average household. Uh, it's a household with two full-time working adults in it. There's two kids, one who's in childcare. We look at their yearly costs, and then we work backwards from there to try and figure out how much the two people working full-time in that house would have to earn on an hourly basis just to cover the basic bills that they'll encounter over the course of that year. And then we can sort of look at the gap between what people actually often earn in those circumstances and, and what they actually need to earn in order to cover those expenses. So that's basically what we do. What's inside the envelope of basic needs? 
Well, so it covers all the sort of regular household expenses, you know, whether we're talking about food, uh, the cost of shelter, you know, your housing costs, clothing, transportation, childcare, healthcare. There's a small amount for contingencies and emergencies in there, those unexpected expenses that sometimes come up. Uh, there's a little bit of money set aside, so one of the full-time working people in that house can go to school part-time um, and some other household expenses. It doesn't cover, I mean, it's it's actually a fairly conservative estimate because it doesn't cover any sort of ability to save for retirement or to save at all. It doesn't really cover uh, old debts that you might have. You know, if you've run up some debt on your credit cards, that's not built into the budget at all. Um, it, it's sort of a bare bones cost of living budget uh, for a year for that household. And, you know, when we talk about funding your retirement, that would be moving target based on age and a variety of factors for yeah. overall costs. But inside the world of paying down debt, there's numbers out there on the average what Canadians earn, or pardon me, they owe. So average household debt now is about $1.83 out to service debt for every dollar coming in. So was there not a way to incorporate some of those averages to paint an even clearer picture? Yeah, so those are interesting questions. Uh, We didn't look at those things because there's a fairly standard methodology and we wanted to sort of apply the sort of standard way this is done uh, for comparability, right? So that we could look at how this plays out in other provinces where they do the calculation in the same way. Um, But I do think, you know, one of the things that we did was a bit that was a bit unique here is we actually went out and talked to some focus groups, some actual uh, people who sort of fall into this category and asked them about the budget. And that did come up, right? They definitely uh, wanted to talk about the extent to which the budget we created was uh, just sort of keeping your head above water. And if you have some other unexpected costs, they're just not built in here. So, and we sort of recognize that the, the living wage calculation isn't designed to sort of fix every problem that every individual person might encounter it's really more of a diagnostic tool to try and get at uh, where people are given the current sort of jump in the cost of living that that is really hitting these houses really hard and how that stacks up against what they're actually earning what are the quotes in the news stories talking about you know we look at the big cities the toronto and vancouver's and curiously calgary's now surpassed vancouver's the most expensive city to live in in the country but rural newfoundland and certainly parts of labrador the cost of living is almost comparable to some of these big cities so what have we found let's dig in let's start in labrador in the northern peninsula yeah so labrador in the northern peninsula is a bit of a unique situation um and and it's exactly that the cost of living there isn't that dissimilar to living in a place like Toronto or Vancouver or Calgary in this country. Um, and that's why age power in in the northern transportation costs in the north mean that people need to earn more to cover those same standard household expenses. And it's a unique problem and a a kind of unique challenge that I don't think governments in Canada are paying enough attention to. Um, The fact that the in places like that are are much higher than they are. Russell, move a couple of steps one way or the other so we have a consistent connection, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah, you're you're breaking up a little bit, unfortunately. Are you still there? 
Yeah, I'm uh, still here. Okay. Sorry. You know, when we talk about some cost concerns in Labrador specifically, and I suppose on the Northern Peninsula, there's been federal programs created like airlift subsidy and the Northern Food Allowance that don't seem to be working. How should we incorporate that? Because we're not just talking about the rate of pay. We're talking about federal government commitment for, to subsidize airlift, for instance, for more remote parts of the country. So is there a way to incorporate the shortcomings of government policy versus how much money people are making? Yeah, so in bigger picture, that's what this is all about. That dragging the living wage problem really comes down to us to make more money, or governments have to create programs that sort of told us those costs of living. You need a that don't apply. The, Russell, the connection is failing us uh, miserably here at this moment. Uh, are you able to get to a landline? We can fo- finish off the conversation in a few minutes. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. Let's do exactly that. I'll have to say goodbye for now. We'll get Russell back when we have a better connection because that, that conversation is far from over. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Marie. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So we've exchanged a couple of emails. So where would you like to start this morning? Well, I've exhausted all the avenues of the research that um, since I was a teenager, and I'm trying to uh, finish my family tree. And there's one branch of the family tree that I seem to find no information out on at all. So I thought this may be a good avenue to follow to call you. Now, I wrote something up that I could read off if that was all right with you. If that's better for you, go right ahead. Because in that way, people, uh, or one, the only way I figure I'm going to get is through oral history. And hopefully somebody, if they're listening, will be able to attach some names to what I'm saying and some of the oral history they would have heard from their ancestors, their grandparents, or great-grandparents, and they may be able to call me, and, and then I'll be able to finish the last uh, information. I really enjoy okay, these well. stories. And, and, and matter of fact, we've actually filled out a couple of branches of family trees over the years when people have told these stories on air. So go right ahead. Great. Okay, James Reed, he arrived in 1800-1801 as an occupier of a fishing room at Hansarver. His father was William Reed, who married Anne Sweetapple Rumbold. Now, James Reed's grandfather was William Henry Bampton, who married a servant girl, Sophia Elizabeth Reed. And since he was disowned by his family, uh, so he changed his name from Bampton to Reed. His oral history had it that William had his own ship and came to the British colony, which is now Newfoundland, and had to go back every fall because of the removal order. In 1800-1801, he moved to Newfoundland with his sons, James John Thomas Albert and his daughter, Sophia and Elizabeth. Uh, immigration records record this information. All the children were educated, so they became occupiers of rooms. Now, the one I'm trying to find is James Reed. He married Isabella Watts in 1802, October the 3rd at St. John's. James drowned in 1824, Tuesday, May the 8th. They left St. John's for Harbor Grace with Mr. John Buckley, Lawrence Connors, John Carroll, Robert Purcell. And a sudden storm came up, and all of them were lost. James Reed had five children. Um, I found three of the children. It was James, born 1813, April the 15th. Isabella, born 1815, April, 1815, April the 15th. And Jane, 1821. She married Jane Ounsel in 1846, November the 14th. And they had Marianne, Isabel, James, 
and William John. That was their children. Now, James Warren Ounsel married Elizabeth Wilshire Owl, and their children were William Booth Owl, Catherine Owl, Elizabeth Owl. Now, Elizabeth Reed was Nee Watts, and after James Reed died, she remarried James Warren, who was a widow from Hampshire. And they married in 1830 on June the 5th at St. John's. Now, James uh, Warren was born, um, oh, I didn't find when he was born. But when they were married, Isabella lived at St. John's, and James lived at Hans Harbor. And that's all the information I can find out on that line. It just simply ceases to exist after. So I'm hoping somebody out there would have some of this in their uh, oral history and could give me a call and let me know how I can find more information. Sure, and hopefully we satisfy exactly that. Out of curiosity, are you doing that for that reason alone, or is there something else to this? Because people are curious oh, no. about where they come from. Oh no no! The only I, I have my genealogy finished from almost from Adam and Eve, and um, so this is the only branch. And I really would like to get this finished. I've been at this now for at least uh, sixty years. So, just in summary, what are the key names you want people to hear, and maybe they can help you connect the dots? Isabella Reed, uh, who was Isabella Watts, and she married uh, James Reed, and um, they had five children. Now, James drowned, and he drowned with John Buckley. Mr. John Buckley owned the boat that he was on, and there was Lawrence Connors, John Carroll, and Ruth, uh, Ruth Robert Parcell. And they left. Uh, the sudden storm came up, and they were all drowned um, in 1824. Now, th- these are the names I need to find. I'm trying to find out James Reed and Isabella Watts, um, their their children's children and grandchildren and whatever. And I, I, I know there's Reeds in St. John's that um, are not a part of my tree, but I'm wondering if they are a part through James. Because James and Isabella Watts had um, a son, James, born in 1813, a daughter, Isabella, born in 1815, and Jane, born in 1821, and moved to the U.S., but there were two other children that I didn't get their names at all. So that's the names. If that triggers any information, be great. Now, the other point is, uh, if they've heard in their background of uh, Bampton, uh, James, uh, William Bampton, who married below himself to a Reed servant girl, and he was disowned by his family, so he changed his last name to his wife's name, Reed. This is the information that will, you know, trigger anything that I need to know. How have you gone about this? Are you, you like using Ancestry.com or some of these online portals? Are you going to the rooms in the archives? How are you chasing your family tree? Well, I started with Mun because when I was in university, I I had access to all of the the books and I could copy the information. So I have copies made of a lot of the immigration information and whatever. And then after that, I went to Chibucto, uh, Jen Webb, Roots. I went to the rooms. I went to heritage.com. And finally, which I only go to Ancestry when I want to go back to another source and confirm it because Ancestry is what people put on, but it doesn't doesn't always line up with uh, other uh, documented research. Uh, someone's asking, how do you spell read? Is it R-E-E-D or R-E-I-D? Well, there's, there's three spellings, and actually <laughs> no they're interchangeable. Okay. It's R-E-I-T, R-E-E-D, and you'll find some of those names have all three different spellings. 
It's amazing how that has happened over the years where people's, you know, related, directly related to each other, spell their surnames differently. Fascinating. Uh, Marie, would you like to give your number out over the air or simply have David uh, offer to anyone who calls? No, no, I'd like to give it out because I really would like to finish this treat. <laughs> no doubt, 16 years in the making. Go right ahead. 709-293-1224. Hopefully this happens for you and you can put the tree to bed. And if and when it does, please let us know. Oh, I most definitely will. And it'll be the best Christmas gift I can ever get if I can get this finished. David wants me to put you on hold, Marie. He has a question for you. So uh, thanks for the call this morning. Good luck with this. And you're going to speak with David, okay? And thank you very much. My pleasure. There we go. Marie's on hold. Let's take a break. When we go back, we'll finish our conversation with Dr. Russell Williams regarding the Newfoundland Labrador Living Wage Report. Don't go away. Ring in the new year with a special edition of the Irish Newfoundland Show, 9 p.m. New Year's Eve. Welcome back to the show. Let's rejoin Dr. Russell Williams on one. Good morning, doctor. You're back on the air. Can you hear me now, Patty? I can hear you much better. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> Sorry about that. So we've made our way through the Northern Peninsula and Labrador. Let's move off to other parts of the province. What do we find? Uh, what we find in the rest of the province is that costs of living are relatively consistent, and that's why the living wage doesn't vary that much. Uh, and we find rates that are broadly comparable to the rest of Atlantic Canada. Um, cost of living is, of course, the biggest takeaway with this project, right? The living wage is quite a bit higher than maybe we might have expected it to be. But we know that from other provinces where this, these reports have been done recently, that inflation has really been hitting these houses hard. And uh, that's what's driving up that living wage and that gap between what people earn and uh, the cost of living. Help me understand the difference between, say, for instance, uh, Central versus St. John's. Because if we're talking about necessities like shelter, you know, the price of a similar 1,400-square-foot bungalow in the city of St. John's is likely much more expensive than the same home in Gander, for instance, or Grand Falls, Windsor, or related communities. So how do, how do we square that circle? Because it seems to me that it could be more yeah. expensive to live here versus other parts of the province simply, simply because of the cost of a home. Yeah, so we're not, uh, the the uh, representative household is not based on home ownership. It's a rental house. Um, and so rents are a lot more consistent across the island uh, than we might expect. Uh, the recent surge in the cost of rents uh, for people in the eastern region are hitting everyone in the province. So uh, we don't see quite that much variation there. You will see in our data that the cost of shelter is a little bit higher in the eastern region, but that's made up for by higher costs for transportation in, in central and western. And so uh, sort of the rates don't really vary that much much but the path to how you get there varies a little bit the sort of basket of costs is a little bit different but fairly comparable let's talk about recommendations that were brought forward yeah so uh our recommendations are fairly broad there's really only two ways to get at this problem right one is for employers to pay more money and that translates into higher wages the other is for governments to get a lot more sensitive uh, to how they provide public policies and public services to these particular kinds of households. A lot of the measures that we have here in Newfoundland and Labrador that target sort of poverty reduction are targeted at a very, very low level. You have to be really, really poor to get any assistance from the government in the form of tax credits for having children, things like that. Uh, that's not really the case in other provinces. Uh, here we rely a lot more 
more on people earning wages to meet those costs than than the kinds of supports that governments can offer to make those things better. So, you know, we've suggested the government needs to look fairly hard at the kinds of thresholds they use uh, for eligibility for those kinds of programs. But there's a whole bunch of other things that could go on. I mean, uh, federal government dental programs, pharmacare, more money for child care, all of those things would really help these households manage the cost of living much, much more effectively. Child care is huge in this. The fact that uh, these families can't get affordable $10 a day child care in this province, and you know that's more readily available in other places in the country, is one of the reasons why our living wage and the gap between what people earn and what they need to earn is so much larger than it is in other jurisdictions. Uh, if we could actually get the dollars into child care that we need to to actually address that need, uh, these families would be a lot better off. For me, that's kind of the sweet spot because, you know, I struggle with the minimum wage conversation currently sitting at $15 as opposed to the $24.20 required, say, in the eastern part of the province. Yeah. Because minimum wage was intended to be an entry-level wage. And there's a vast difference between my son living at home making minimum wage versus a single yeah. mother of two living on her own in a rental unit. So I don't know if we're ever going to really hit the target necessarily when we focus in on minimum wage alone. Government policy and support for programs like daycare, that really seems to me to be much more sensible because even if you adjusted the minimum wage to $18 tomorrow, it's still not going to satisfy the different age groups that are making minimum wage or working close to minimum wage. So it's government programs. And as soon as people are going to push back and say, look, you know, we're just spending so much money and government is throwing money away and, you know, people should work hard or get more training. The fact of the matter is when you're unable to make ends meet, that has a direct relationship with the most expensive things in the country regarding health care and criminal justice. So to get this right is better for everybody, regardless if you're worried about creeping socialism or late capitalism or liberalism, period. The fact of the matter is when people are struggling, they make bad decisions, they have bad health outcomes, and there's nothing more expensive than a night in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's absolutely true. So for our representative household here in this province, uh, it's a difference of $6,000 just for that one item. That's a lot of money, extra money that you have to earn in this province because you can't access $10 a day childcare here. Um, and that is one of the things that really jumped out in, in the focus groups that we did with people is the growing sense that there's a better deal for them in other provinces. That if you're a low income working household, uh, it's time to think about moving on to another province because not only are wages higher in other jurisdictions to help you cover the costs and, and deal with what inflation is doing to household budgets, but there's more assistance from the public sector there. Um, and the, the interesting thing is more and more people in this province seem to be aware of that, um, and I think government should really be paying attention to that. I appreciate your time and effort on this report, and thanks for joining us this morning. Yep, thanks, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Dr. Russell Williams. He's an associate professor of political science at Memorial University and on research leave working on this particular report talking about living wage. I mean, this is where it gets extremely difficult to, you know, hear the numbers, digest the numbers, understand exactly what they mean, and attempts to try to, you know, close the gap. And people will be concerned, and understandably so, about how government spends money and just how much money is being spent federally and provincially, the level of debt for both levels of government that are being carried at this moment in time. The careful evaluation, and there's no real update coming from the provincial government and the committee struck to look at income, basic or guaranteed, but we really do have to stand back and look at the implications of poverty. 
because poverty is not only a societal issue, it has huge economic strains on the systems of government, whether that be in transportation, healthcare, criminal justice, social services, all of the rest of it. You know, if we had a real comprehensive look at all of the numbers, the boutique tax cuts, the cost of social services, the cost of healthcare, how and why people are becoming so ill that they need a night in the hospital, how and why people are finding themselves repeatedly in the courthouses and consequently in the prisons. We don't really know. So even when we look at something like Tent City, for instance, we're talking about the need for permanent housing solutions. The questions I think that are not unfair is how and why did people find themselves in that particular life predicament? You know, is it based on mental health issues and access to long-term care? Is it based on addictions and access to treatment if and when they want it? Because simply trying pretending that building a house cures their own ills in full is sort of nonsensical. Now, the starting point does need to be adequate, healthy housing, but that only paints and only includes a portion of the picture. You know, very similar to when we talk about living wage and what that means. So, anyway, minimum wage is never going to be $24.20. It's not. And that's where government carefully crafted programs for accessibility and affordability makes all the difference. Not simply pretending that businesses are already in precarious positions, you know, especially in uh, some of the industries that pay minimum wage. We could be asking for trouble. Now, I'm not going to be the, the doomsday guy by saying, you know, if you increase the minimum wage, we'll lose all these jobs because that's been test-driven in provinces like Ontario. When the, the worry was 60,000 jobs will be slashed when they move to $15 an hour, it didn't happen. But it's how government creates the affordability and accessibility issue that makes all the difference, not necessarily simply about a minimum wage. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Colin, you're on the air. Morning, Mr. Daly. How are you on the eyes of December? I'm hanging in there and not trying to wish my time away, but I am keenly focused on next Friday, 12 o'clock. <laughs> anyway, where are we going this I morning? Understand. We're going to talk about the sentencing hearing for uh, Mr. Burt in provincial court. The uh, very tragic case of uh, an impaired driving causing death matter yep. before the courts. Yeah, Joshua Burt, he pled guilty, and there was an agreed statement of facts read into the court's records yesterday. Yeah, so there's, uh, you know, he's pleaded guilty, and he's going to be sentenced on that, and the sentencing is set out according to a, a multitude of uh, parameters that had to be considered by the trial judge. You know, his age, prior criminal record, uh, precedent from this province and Supreme Court of Canada. So now I understand all that, but one thing that often gets overlooked in uh, cases like this, I think, is the, um, the administrative and the regulatory aspect of licensing in the province, which is provincial jurisdiction which is completely separate from the criminal code sanctions that are applied for a criminal conviction, uh, you know, incarceration and, and uh, fines and things like that. Uh, regarding licensing of drivers who are convicted of impaired driving causing death, as, as is uh, with this case. And I just looked at the uh, motor vehicles website for the province and the, and the uh, administrative penalties for uh License suspension and revocation for impaired driving causing death. If you're convicted uh, of impaired driving causing death in this province, uh, your license is uh, immediately revoked, obviously, and you're given a lifetime suspension. But uh, that suspension can be reviewed after a period of 10 years into the suspension. Isn't this sort of a secondary concern, the, uh, the status of his driver's license versus the amount of time he'll spend in prison? Yeah, you know, I, I understand that. 
uh, he's going to get uh, maybe seven to ten years behind bars. And uh, that doesn't, in my opinion, doesn't uh, account for the, the loss of life. Uh, there's no minimum sentence. Uh, there, there is a maximum of life in prison with 10 years for, yep. for probation. So there, this is obviously a very, very serious crime. Going 120 mile, 129 kilometers an hour in the wrong direction, blind, drunk, and a man is dead. Yeah. You know, I, I think with the uh, the licensing requirements under the provincial legislation that uh, a lifetime suspension should be just that. Sure. And, you know, again, we've heard a couple of stories here about people who had their driver's license banned, whether it be forever or for a number of years, and they still continue to drive. There's that one story of a guy who's got repeated drunk driving convictions. He struck and killed an old lady not so long ago, pardon me, an elderly lady not that long ago, struck and hurt a young boy on his dirt bike and broke his leg not so long ago, told him to get up and dust himself off and body drove away so he's he's not allowed to drive but he drives so the whole thing about the license ban is a part of the story but until we get to sentencing another understanding whether or not the government pardon me the courts are going to take this serious enough to put him behind bars for 7 10 15 years whatever the right number is i don't know but remember there was a young lady named hannah killed in a street racing incident some years ago and the fellas responsible for her death i think they got two years so This is just not good enough. You know, I do talk a lot about rehabilitation in conjunction with punishment, but on these fronts, punishment is obviously a serious consideration and factor. You know, rehabilitating somebody is part of the equation. We we focus a lot on punishment, and so be it. Because in this case, I know the people involved, so maybe I'm taking more personally than I would otherwise, which I shouldn't because a human life is a human life. But let's see what happens. I think the sentencing is scheduled for February, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's, um, you know, and there, there are people who will continue to drive even if their license is uh, revoked permanently. And there's obviously nothing you can do about those people. They're just going to keep going until they're, they either kill themselves or uh, they end up in prison for the rest of their life for some other reason. But, uh, you know, I think the, per- the lifetime suspension should be just that. And also in the, uh, the same uh, legislation from motor vehicles, is if you've had four or more uh, convictions for impaired driving, uh, and the fourth conviction occurs within 10 years of the first conviction, uh, you get a lifetime suspension, and that's reviewable after 10 years. I, I think the um, if you get four convictions, no matter what the time period is, yeah, on your fourth conviction, you get the lifetime suspension. Then, again, that should not be re- able to be reviewed either. So if you're 53 years old, for example, and, you're fir- and you were born in 1970, your first conviction was in 1989 when you were 19, your second conviction was at 30, your, and your and your third conviction was at uh, 35. So now you've, you've, your third conviction was 15 years ago. You're now 53, or over 15 years ago. Uh, your fourth conviction, you got convicted yesterday. It's gone. Do away with that 10-year 10 10-year 10 period, you know. It's, uh, it's a terrible story. It's all too common here with the, the numbers of people who are being caught and convicted of drunk driving, and in this case, uh, drunk driving causing death. So it's absolutely dreadful story. Uh, I appreciate the time, Colin. Thanks a lot. You know, that could be your, you or me tomorrow just going out running some errands or whatever, and uh, you encounter somebody like this, and, and you're dead. And then your family has to deal with you or me or anybody else, and it's just not acceptable, you know? Appreciate the time. Merry Christmas. Same to you. Take care. Bye now. All right, bye-bye. David, I'm sorry. What do you want me to do here now? Okay. Well, we don't want to squish the important conversations up to the news, so let's try this. Line number one. Good morning, Mac. You're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you, Sarney? Top shelf. How about you? Uh, Not too bad, buddy. Hey, listen, I got a 90th birthday that I want to put on for my mom. Sure. 
Okay, her name is Gladys Hickey. She's from Riverhead, St. Mary's. Oh, yeah. Yes, sir, buddy. There's seven kids, one foster brother. She got 15 grandkids and eight great-grandkids. She's here in town today, and now we're going to have a party this evening. Fantastic. Does she still live uh, out in Riverhead, though? Oh, yes. She's in her own ho- in her own house and everything in, in uh, Coots Pond there in, there in Riverhead, right? I was going to ask you whereabouts Riverhead, so I'm familiar yeah. with Coots Pond, yeah. What do you call the Cove Road? Yeah, right. That's where she lives, too. Yeah. Yes, sir, buddy. So you gave us the numbers of siblings and uh, grandchildren and whatnot. Tell us a little bit about your mom. Oh, uh, well... <laughs> She raised us. She did, I think she did a, a fine job of us. And uh, we were well fed. And uh, all pretty good at school. So she's the best. Does anybody else belong to her live out in Riverhead? Uh, we got a sister out there, uh, Telma. She lives in St. Mary's. And she's always up with Mom every day now to, uh, to uh, have dinner and everything with her, have lunch. And uh, mom sits her vegetables and everything every year, right? So, and she just give up driving there not long ago now, right? She always had she always had a new car, so, and she just gave it up now a little while ago. So, yep. And what are her plans for tonight? <laughs> well, I don't know. We'll uh, run over to uh, over to uh, our niece's house and. Uh, that's where the party's going to be, it's open house, right? So it's open house over there tonight. So we're all going over for a bite to eat, a few snorts. Right? It's like uh, what? <laughs> that all goes with us. It's all part of it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I want to join you and everyone uh, here at the station wishing Gladys Hickey the very happiest 90th birthday and hopefully there's a fine time had by all tonight. Oh, it's going to be. And tell her hello for me, of course, but I don't know if she listens or you listen to the program, but I've got a direct connection with Riverhead. My father's from Riverhead. Yeah, we know. Mom knows, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And listen, uh-huh. I have you on every morning. Oh, good. I appreciate all it. All the time, buddy. I'll talk to you later. Enjoy the party. Yeah, you have a Merry Christmas now. You too, Mac. All the best. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Bye-bye. <clears throat> Yeah, some of my pals, they razz me up relentlessly because they say, every time I hear your show, you're talking about your dad's from Riverhead. We know, boy, we know. <laughs> I can't help it. You want to know what else? Mom's from the Cove. Apparently, I say that all the time, too. All right, let's check in on the Twitter. More VOCM Open Line follows there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, a couple of important conversations. I did give the heads up that, you know, some of the people are concerned with the cut in funding for Metrobus. How that uh, c- concern is going to be articulated, we'll find out right after the break. And also, the Shadow Minister for Education is the PC member for Topsail Paradise, talking about some of the most recent stories, whether it be student violence against teachers, student against student violence, the math, science, and reading scores, all these staffing-related matters, and all the whole concept of since March of 2009, the inclusive model has been uh, used here in this province. Whether or not it's working, we'll see what Paul Din thinks after this. Don't go away. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five and say good morning to Dr. David Brake. He's with the Essential Transit Association, and good morning, David. David, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's uh, I, I wish that I. It's always a pleasure to be on the on the 
call, but uh, I, I wish it wasn't for this uh, disappointing reason of the, uh, the recent announced uh, budget cuts by Metrobus. So, you know, when Metrobus is in the black to the tune of $5 million and the subsidy required for continued operations and or to enhance operations, whether it be Metrobus by demand or some of the zip routes, so how are you taking this reduction of $1.4 million as a result operational uh, operations will be less than they were this past year? What's your concern? Well, my concern is, is uh, that far from, from cutting, uh, the Metrobus clearly is, needs to expand, needs to, uh, to, to get bigger and better by the council's own uh, plans. Like they have said uh, that they need, by 2030, they want 66% more people on the buses. Uh, how is that going to happen? If uh, they are already they're talking about cutting, and uh, at the same time, uh, the council says we will support any future growth plan, but the future growth plan is already well overdue, and planning on it has barely started. Um, I hear nothing about, for example, um, calling in the independent consultants who have been necessary for any previous uh, work. Um, so I don't think Metrobus is serious about a growth plan of the scale that the city needs, uh, and the city isn't isn't pushing them to, to put one together. Um, in in the context of, of your previous caller, um, uh, Professor Williams talking about uh, anti-poverty and you know cost of living. Ridership on the buses is up 44 percent. That is pretty clearly a reflection that people are waking up to the possibility that uh, riding the bus could make a real difference in their cost of living because it costs around $10,000 a year to run a car. So if you had a service where more people felt like comfortable and happy using the bus, that could be saving every person who, every person who feels they could stop maintaining one or more cars would be saving $10,000 a year so running a proper bus service could be a huge help to the cost of living of many people in, in, in St. John's, and, and it's dropped the ball. Sure. An increased funding at Metrobus is also curious, given the fact that a lot of the ridership increase probably comes due to the fact that low-income earners have been given a free pass. So I'm still trying to square all those circles. But... I read the story entirely different, to be honest with you, not to say that you, what you're talking about is not of concern, but if they had a $5 million surplus use, $1.7 million to pay down debt, sitting on a surplus of $3.3 million, which is specifically for enhancing their operations, I thought that that was the good news. You know, we're told new buses are coming in in June, trying to enhance some of the uh, services that are already in place, like on demand and zip routes and whatnot. So I guess I just read the numbers different. I thought this was a good news story. You know, 70% of their operations used to come from direct support from the city. Now it's under 35%. $7 million coming from the riders themselves. Well, or, or if you look at it another way, uh, every penny that the riders have, uh, have been contributing has just been clawed back by the city. Um, normally, around two-thirds of the cost of running the buses is picked up at the, by the city, but they decided that uh, now they're just going to take any of the cost savings they've had and put them back into the general coffers instead of put, using that money uh, to invest in making the service better. Um, 
So is it your understanding that the leftover surplus of $3.3 million is in the hands of the city coffers or remains at Metrobus for exactly that, the intended purpose of enhancing service and accommodating the ridership increase? Well, I see no I see no sign of a uh, plan to accommodate the, the, the ridership increase with any additional funds. They would need to announce that. They, there is an announced, there's a plan to have a plan. <laughs> there's a plan to have a growth plan, a growth plan because the current strategic plan runs out at the end of the year, but it's been known for months that uh, bus numbers, uh, ridership has been, been, been going up since, at least since May. Uh, when they had the, the largest number of riders ever, but um, they don't—they're currently going to be starting to do a marketing plan, a marketing and uh, serve a customer satisfaction survey in January, which they will wait for the results of before they start putting together a growth plan without hiring consultants. Which to me says any growth plan they put up with, uh, they put together couldn't possibly be on the scale needed to accommodate 44% more riders and a target of making that even larger in five years. Not only that, but but realistically, if you're going to do something like that, which they need to, councillors and the council need to be out there warming people up. They need to be out there saying, you know, we said we would have a growth plan. We do have a growth plan. You need to be prepared, as they've done with housing, incidentally. You, know, you need to be prepared. We're going to present an ambitious growth plan, and it's going to cost some extra money, but it's what we need to do. It's going to help you with your, with your cost of living and so on. That is not what, that's not what they're happening. It's not what's happening. We're not being um, given a real sign, not, not just to tell people why, but also to give people who are now sitting maybe there's probably thousands of them around the, the city today going oh man you know uh, my car is nearing the end of its life do uh, can i do without buying it can i do without buying a second car or replacing a second car can i rely on metro bus well i've seen sand i you know i find it hard to justify suggesting that to someone given say the metro bus is in today but if Metrobus was out, if the city and Metrobus was out there and they were saying, we are, we have an ambitious plan, long-term plan, we're going to significantly increase the quality and standard of our service because we recognize how important it is. That would be a thing people need to know now to make their decisions. So the 44% increase is since 2019. So go from just over 3 million riders to about 4.5 million by the end of this year. So given that spike, are the current operations keeping up with the increased ridership? Well, uh, I can say that in a recent uh, commission meeting, we've been assured that uh, people are no longer being turned away from buses. If that is indeed, that's what the general manager told the commission uh she didn't provide any figures but they certainly were being turned away in the past um and so we hope that that's the case but um to be to be honest uh, you know it, it's not just keeping up with the, the demand on existing routes there are a lot of people who if they could have the choice to ride the bus, to depend on a bus, 
had buses that came at came at times and uh, returned them at, at, to home at times in the morning and evening that would enable them to take on additional jobs that ran to where they were uh, at a sen- and ran at sensible frequencies and, and length of the time that it took. They would like to be able to use Metrobus, but Metrobus has been deficient for years and uh, people have lost hope. And what disturbs me greatly, frankly, is that Metrobus, although they won't necessarily say so out in the open, Metrobus and the council recognize that this is an inadequate service that people, if they can possibly avoid using it, do avoid using it. Uh, At a recent uh, commission meeting, there's a scholar who's uh, studying newcomers and their use of public transit, saying things like, interviewing newcomers and asking them about their uh, use of transit in one of them told her she didn't expect she came from the UK she didn't expect to be forced to buy a car when they came to St. John's Uh, another newcomer effectively learned what the word skeet meant because she told people she was going to be taking the bus Uh, one of the councillors who's in that meeting admitted people only plan that, that that people in in her uh, that she talked to said that people only plan to stick around using the bus until they can afford a car or when gas prices drop. And uh, to her credit, she said this needs to be taken into account when we're talking about the growth plan. But you would think that you're sitting, you're managing Metrobus. If you heard people would do anything they could to stop using the service, wouldn't you be ashamed? Wouldn't you like protest? Nobody, nobody would seem at all surprised. And again, for me, guess- some of the, the deficiencies in Metrobus, I think were kind of fueled by the fact that ridership was so low. But of course, then the concept of if, if you build it, they will come. It's certainly in the city's best interest to expand public transportation, whether it be traffic congestion, uh, emissions, or whatever else under the sun. Because when ridership is up and there's surplus money to be spent on operations and the survey that's being conducted, I would imagine, you know, as opposed to reducing or, har- or harming the service, that it's in everyone's collective best interest, most notable notably the riders and the city, to ensure that ridership increases are reflected by the operational increases and efficiencies to be found. So fair enough, you're the people that are looking at this all the time, but I'll admit once again, I read the story entirely different. I thought this was a good news story, given that there would be coming improvements to the service because people are using it. Well, and that's the way it should be. That is the story that that we should have heard. We should have heard um, in view of the clear demand for our service, our inability to keep up with it, the necessity to uh, not embarrass ourselves come 2025 when uh, people across Canada come to the city. All sorts of good reasons, the uh, need to alleviate poverty and so on, that uh, we're going to turn around and invest all this money and more into making a a metro bus that we can be proud of. Uh, I just wanted to add one uh, one thing from all the way back in uh, 2011, uh, Metrobus said we need to be in a, in a review of its own service. It said we need to be perceived as an indispensable municipal service as important as snow clearing and waste management. And what I hear repeatedly is um, they, they, they don't believe that to be true. Um, the council doesn't seem to believe that it's true. Um, if in a council meeting someone said, 
my constituents tell me they drive the city's roads in winter now, but as soon as they can, they pay someone privately to shovel their street instead. That would cause an uproar. But if you if you say, well, you know, Metrobus is important, but only if you can't afford to, you know, do something else. Like I can't understand how the council can allow and Metrobus can can look at that squarely in the eye and uh, not act in a vigorous way to to to, to give us a, a service that that they're proud of instead of kind of provide reluctantly. I appreciate the time this morning, David. Thanks for this. Thank you. You're welcome, Thanks sir. You Take care. Bye-bye. It's Dr. David Brake, the Essential Transit Association. Uh, let's take a break, but stay right there if you're in the queue. Peter wants to talk about Metrobus as well, but the Shadow Minister for Education is Paul Din. He's next. Don't go away. And welcome back. Uh, let's go to line number four. Paul Din, he's the PC member for Topsail Paradise. He's also the Shadow Minister of Education. Uh, good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. I, uh, I heard your preamble and... Uh, of course, in my new role as uh, education, child and social development uh, shadow minister, uh, I want to offer my opinion or my comments uh, from what I've been hearing because I've had, had a number of meetings now with uh, various stakeholders, and I'll continue to do that. And uh, unfortunately, in my short t- t- time at this, uh, I, I keep hearing the word crisis again when it comes to education. And uh, I think uh, on your show, and it's certainly been out there uh, uh, the news on you know such thing as uh, the PISA results. Uh, there's been talk about inclusive classrooms, uh, classroom compositions, and, and as well, really troubling is the violence in the classroom, and that goes on. And uh, we're well aware of uh, the gentleman who, uh, who was on the news recently, a teacher, actually a friend of mine from back back in the Holy Cross days. Good Mike. Uh, Mike Walsh, yeah, you yeah. know, and Mike's uh, Mike's a uh, you know was a basketball player at the time, so he's he's not a small individual. So, so to hear him, uh, you know, very emotionally talk about, you know, uh, some of the instances, and in, in, in particular one very recent one, you know, of, uh, of you know being attacked by a child, is is very troubling, you know, uh, in in the school system, and uh, you know, I've seen most a lot of back and forth on social media on this, most uh, you know applauding Mike for for having the courage and that to come out and speak to this, but he's not alone. I've heard so many uh, in the short times uh, similar stories, uh, and of teachers that are substantially smaller in stature than than Mike. And uh, one thing that stuck in my head was one one person on uh, on social media had said, you know, schools are learning environments, and the question becomes, well, what's being done to ensure that all all students are getting the, the education they deserve? And, uh, you know, you've noted it that, you know, when you have some, uh, some children in, in the classroom who, who, who need special help and special needs and special supports, uh, sometimes that plays on, uh, on the advancement of other students in the classroom. And when you, you talk about, I think you talked about, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, inclusivity, you know, and the con- conceptually it's a, it's, it's a good thing. But I look at it, I mean, any, you know, if you're bringing in something, anything, and, you know, inclusive classrooms being one, you know, without, without the, the right resources, you're setting yourself up to fail. You know, you're setting yourself up to fail. And we've heard from so many reports that have been out there. 
I've heard from teachers and students, and I, I sit on a school council. I've been on school councils for the last 20 years. I continue to do that, and you hear hear from people. I actually taught in the classrooms at one point in time because I did a degree in education for for three weeks, and you know, so I'm not immune to what's in there. I do, my heart goes out to the teachers and the resources out there who do this on a full-time basis, and and, and with the limited resources they have. We've had reports out there. The Child Advocate, uh, Youth Advocate had put out a report in 2019 on chronic ab- absenteeism. There's been a premier's report that was done by this government in 2017. There's been multiple uh, PISA reports that come out. You know, I mean, so so you ask your, your question, the question asked is, what have we learned? I mean, we know that performance of uh, students in, in mathematics has steadily decreased. We know there's complexities in the classrooms that steadily increased. We know resources are strained, if they're there at all. And, you know, a point that was made, uh, I think uh, my brother made it yesterday when talking about classroom sizes and the composition. You know, you can't continue to kick the can down the road, you know. And it's a bit discouraging to hear the minister say, you know, that education in Newfoundland and Labrador is about to be transferred. When, when we had these reports that have been out there that have talked to many of the similar issues that we're suffering or seeing today. You know, and I, I look at that uh, Premier's Task Force on, uh, on Educational Outcomes, and, and the, the very last sentence, is, I got it here in front of me, the very last sentence in that document says, now is the time to improve educational outcomes and to begin the next chapter in education in Newfoundland and Labrador. That's six and a half years ago. So, so what are we doing? That becomes the question, and and it's very discouraging, and disheartening on on teachers as well as students and parents. Nobody wants to be the politician or the person to say that the inclusive model is not working, yeah. because you know, in concept, and everyone will agree with this, is that we should not be treating children who have different requirements, behavioral issues, on the spectrum, are deaf or hard of hearing. We shouldn't treat them different and ostracize them and isolate them in their own specialized school. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, until and or unless you staff the inclusive model appropriately, it's destined to not work. I mean, there's got to be a direct relationship with the fact. Like I read Mike Walsh's story too, so he. Was would talk about the copious amount of time that he would spend attending to five or six students and having to, unfortunately, not give the attention to the other students in the classroom. That's got to have a direct relationship with the outcomes. Then you talk about chronic absenteeism, which I'm almost tired of talking about, but I can't get anyone to take it as serious as I, I'm sure it is. And just for context for people, that's missing a month or more school. And so there's some 10% of students in that exact category when Jackie Lake Kavanaugh made that report. And for the most important number inside that, if you're chronically absent in grades, there's a 75% chance that you don't graduate from high school. All of these things are directly related to outcomes. They have to be. So then add into, you know, children who have an exceptionality, they're quite gifted, and they're not being challenged and they don't want to go to school because they're bored, bored to tears. There's just so many different things that are simply not working to the best, collective best interest of the student population, the teachers, administrators, and society as a whole. Because if we're not going to have a well-educated population, I'm not suggesting that we're producing a bunch of uh, dimwits coming out of high school. I'm not saying that at all. But the math scores are down 29%. 
since our 29 points since 2003. Oh my God, what's going on? So to not be able to acknowledge that there is something drastically wrong is a betrayal of the system. And I'm not saying that's all falls on Minister Howell. That's oh, a collective God, no, governmental no. issue. No, I totally agree. I mean, Minister Howell has stepped into this role, <laughs> similar to me, stepping into this role. But it's been ongoing. And, it's you know, you mentioned the, the report of Jackie Lake Cabinet. Now, I don't want to misquote her, but I think one of the quotes at the time when that report came out, uh, I think she said there's enough information for government to act. Government doesn't need to keep researching this forever. That's There's something she said to that effect. And, and she's correct. You know, we look at, uh, when I look at the, uh, uh, it always baffled me. I know you have to have a system, but it always baffled me how, uh, how resources are, or units of resources or teaching resources are allocated to schools, you know, 0.25 and 0.7 this and that. You know, at the end of the day, if you got a classroom like Mike Walsh's, who, tells, who says that 25% of his class, 25% of his class have special needs, and, uh, you know, they don't have the resources to support that, I mean, you're set up to fail. And it's not just the teacher. It's the children <laughs> that are set up to fail, just like you just said. It's the children who need the, that special attention, but it's, in the, it's the children that, that may, because of a lack of resources, and are, are not getting the attention they need as well. So, you know, to, to, say, to, you know, to say we're going to transform education now after this is a an issue that's been around for a long time, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't give any, you know, warm and fuzzy feeling to me that there's going to be any action there. And, uh, you know, to go do another survey, and I think she, uh, the minister said, you know, it's, it's top priority, a survey, but you really need to start looking at uh, at action here. And look, in my, my previous role in, in um, health, I mean, I know that 70%, 70% of mental health and addictions issues and that begin or arise in early childhood. School-age kids. And when you have kids, as you just alluded to, that, you know, 75% of those in grade 6 who are, who are uh, have chronic ab- absenteeism will not graduate, will not finish high school, that's, that's huge. You it know, why, why are we not dealing with that? Why are we not looking at it? Why do we not... When we look at educational psychologists in the school, one educational psychologist is allotted for 800 kids. Yeah, there's some 40, I think, on staff. Isn't that amazing? <clears throat> yeah. When you think about the issue. And guidance counselor ratio, 1 to 500. When 10, 15 years ago, the recommendation was 1 to 333. I'm going to, quick comment, and then I'll let yeah. you wrap this up. There's also a family-related matter here because the studies are ongoing. We're talking about social media and the impact on anxiety, depression, potentially lashing out in anger. They're using brain imagery, not anecdotal yeah. evidence, so that's very real. Then you talk about attention spans and just how popular some social media sites like are, are like TikTok. So yeah. while the government has to, you know, better deliver in the K-12 system, I do think there's a growing documentation and research showing, you know, what screen time means. So if you're anxious, depressed, or lashing out, or your attention span has been compromised because of social media, TikTok yeah. in particular, then there's another issue where, you know, we all play a role here in education. It's simply not inside the confines of a school. You know, education is an ongoing matter. Through the summer, in the evenings, yeah. you know, there's lots of things we can do for helping our children with their reading comprehension and the like. I know people are stressed and they're pressed 
rest for time. Yeah. But anyway, very quickly, last no, comment before I have I, to go. I, I do want to say, yeah, you're exactly right. And, and the report on absenteeism uh, certainly alludes to that. We, you know, uh, uh, to raise a child takes a takes a village, right? And 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 that's no no uh, you know that's no different than the issues we're dealing with right now. I do do I do want to take a shout out to uh, to our crew, um, our paradise our parents for school in paradise, uh, uh, making very good progress. And uh, you know certainly a high school there will help. Our me- latest meeting with the uh, minister Howell was was very good. In fact, Minister Studley was at the, the meeting as well. And she she actually alluded to uh, having seen some of the budget documents and and seen Paradise High School on the top of that, and, and went so far as to su- suggest the committee be there for the uh, budget announcement. Uh, I'll take that for what it is, you know. Uh, we'll take it as a win, but we'll we'll believe it when we hear it, so to speak. So we're we're not taking the pe- uh, the foot off the pedal. We're going to continue to push forward for that. And uh, you know, I will say uh, anyone can reach out to me with any issues on uh, anything, but uh, in particular my role now as education critic. Uh, I'm still trying to get up to speed on it. I'm, I'm not where my brother is yet, given his history, but uh, I, I hopefully I'll get close. I appreciate but, the time, Paul. Yeah, but look, I wish everyone a Merry Christmas and all the best in the New Year. Thanks, the same Have to you and all yours. Right. All right. Thanks, Paul. Uh, PC member from Topsail Paradise, Shadow Minister of Education, and one of the teachers in his riding, or his district, Peter Constantine from Paradise Elementary, just won the Premier's Award for Teaching Innovation. In his library tech sessions, they incorporate coding, 3D printing, and green screen use. Congratulations to you, Peter. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Abby Worthman. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. We exchanged emails with one of your colleagues. What's going on? Um, so I'm just trying to inform everybody about we're doing a drive for the food bank today in Coastal Outdoors in Carboneer. Um, we're asking for any kind of donation. If you come in and donate, you can get 20% off any item in the store, excluding Bluntstones. And uh, we're the management at... Coastal here has kindly offered $1,000 cash, and we're challenging other businesses in the area. Come on down, help donate. It's a fantastic cause, and they need our help. So you're on site uh, receiving donations today and tomorrow? Yes, today and tomorrow. Um, From 1 to 5, today and tomorrow, you can come down with the food donation and get your picture taken with the Grinch. (laughs) <laughs> and remember, the Grinch, when it all uh, unfolded, the Grinch was the good guy. So, he sure was. <laughs> all right, so. on. Get your picture taken with the Grinch, uh, whether you be young or young at heart. So today, Friday the 15th from 1 to 5, Saturday the 16th from 1 to 5 at Coastal Outdoors in Carboneer, the food drive. Please do, if at all possible, make a donation. Good opportunity to get a 20% discount uh, from in-store purchase, except for the old Blunnies. The Bluntstone's the most popular boot in St. John's. If you go to a Christmas party here in St. John's, uh, if there's 100 boots in the port, 90 of them are Bluntstones. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so good luck with this. Congratulations on putting it off. Okay, thank you very much. Hope everyone can make it down. Hope so. Thanks, Abby. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, Abby Worth from Coastal Outdoors, Carbon Air Location. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And your request just might win you a cozy VOCM winter toque. Your Merry Christmas station. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Peter. You're on the air. Hi, how are you? Doing okay. How about you? 
All right. Um, I am a little bit furious, though, about the removal of funding from the city to Metrobus. Um, it's sort of like, how can they expect them to improve um, what's already a terrible service? Um, I don't think that service is going to go down, um, but I'm just concerned that it's not going to improve. Because uh, as your uh, caller earlier was talking about how uh, some people try to avoid taking the bus, I am certainly one of those. I uh, started a new position at work that got me at a new location where um, it's like a 40 minute walk to work, so not entirely the best in the worst of weather. And uh, I decided I wanted to get a bus. But the problem with taking the bus is um, Basically, I'm outside in the elements for as long if I take the bus as if I walk. Uh, with waiting for the bus or showing up at work, like the very first shift I had at work, my options were be an hour early for my shift or be 20 minutes late. And it was just sort of like, well, I might as well walk, which to me for years has been pretty much the slogan of Metrobus. You might as well walk because it's not going to get you there any faster. Um, and I just, the service needs improvement. It doesn't need to remain the same. And the city, and it can't improve with a city that hates pedestrians. Yeah, I mean, walking around town or riding a bike around town is taking uh, some potential risks. And again, like I said to David Brake earlier, you know, with Metrobus now sitting on $3.3 million after paying down $1.7 million worth of debt, the thought is that for the first time in a long time, they have the capacity without direct funding from the government to actually enhance the operation. So again, like I told David Brake, <clears throat> I just kind of read the story differently than maybe yourself or David or others that have been on my Twitter feed, because when the ridership is up, it just stands to reason that because it's in the city's best interest to reduce the amount of funding directly to Metrobus, that they would be uh, cooperative with David Brake and the Essential Transit Association, understanding of your concerns and accommodations that, as a result of this survey that's currently in the field to be wrapped up by the end of January. So if the service is not improved, I'd be surprised. Well, I mean, on the survey, they did a survey in 2018. Yes, but of course, since 2018, with the increase in ridership, is now the obvious need to make sure that the service is accommodating the 44% jump since 2019, the forecasted increase in the future, if indeed that is going to be the case, that the forecasted does look like the need for more buses, better routes, on-demand services, all the rest of it. But I, I get it. The service has been deficient for a long time, and consequently, people have a hard time understanding or believing that the service will be improved to reflect the increased ridership, but it just simply has to yes but i mean our politicians have a history of ignoring the public fair enough i mean they they've they've been saying for years about how they're going to improve this how this needs to happen about you know environmental stuff like that and like we don't see the investment 
you know, here they have a chance to invest and they got, no, they, they've got funding. It's, it, you know, Danny Breen, it just seems to me like every time there's an issue or something, he loves to pass the buck to the province or somewhere else. And it seems on this whole Metro bus issue with the whole like, well, you know, when it comes time that they need more money, they can apply for funding from other places other than us is just kind of like, well, you have no interest in improving this, this service, do you? Well, you know, some of this is attitudinal. So the increase in ridership, I would imagine, is basically because of newcomers and folks who have uh, not received a free bus pass, people who are trying to deal with cost of living issues, the price of gas, inflation, and all the rest of it. So I guess there's a bunch of contributing factors as to why that 44% number is in play. And hopefully, look, we do need an efficient uh, public transit system here. And hopefully some of the attitudinal things like, you know, what was one of the stories David Brake told was, so some newcomer learned the word ski based on their want to use the bus you know and then all the reference to the loser cruiser and all the rest of it when in fact in every other major city in this country public transportation is taken by all hands whether it be the working poor and or people wearing a five thousand dollar suit it's just the way it works elsewhere and there's no reason why it can't work better here exactly i appreciate the time peter anything else you'd like to say this morning no that's about all i appreciate it thanks for the call Thank you. You're welcome, sir. Bye-bye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. All right, there we go. A few Merry Christmases being exchanged here today. Love it. Let's take a break. When we come back, Mike's in the queue to talk about addictions, and then we're going to talk about some issues at a personal care home. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line three. Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, good morning. Uh, Patty, I, uh, forgive me if you hear my dog barking in the background, but I decided to bark at the time I got on the air with you. Um, Patty, a, a tremendously interesting uh, show you got on the go there this morning. Uh, I'd like to uh, comment on uh, one of the stories that's been prominent in BOC. Uh, okay, go ahead. Are you able to hear me, Patty? Oh, I can hear you, yeah. Uh, okay, I, I'd like to comment. Uh, there's a real tragedy going on in the courtroom. This has gone on many days and many times, many weeks, many years. A tragedy of a, you know, a drunk driver and death and and its impact on everybody involved, particularly those who lost a loved one, you know? That's a real, real, you know, heart ripper, that is. And it's unfortunately not a whole lot people can do is just look at it and what's happened under. Penny, this time of year, for some reason, in Christmas time, there seems to be a, a greater um, license, I guess. It's probably a poor word to use. But a, a, a greater willingness to uh, to drink or to use other drugs for alcohol or other drugs to blot to blot out things, in my opinion, not just but to blot things out. Is there a number that can be easily reached out by those affected or licked by the flames of addiction, be it through alcohol or through uh, some other drug? That you're aware of. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. You're talking about like a crisis line or. Yeah, yeah. If you're, if you, if for example, you, you let's say you don't want to drink. Sadly, the big thing is that many people nowadays uh, are, are looked down on for not wanting to drink. You know, for some reason, it's uh, oh, what's wrong with you? Why don't you want to drink? But uh, of course, it, it should be, an, it should be a real plus for you. It should be a, a feather in your cap if you've chosen not to drink. 
or, or to, uh, you know, spend money you don't have on things you don't need for people you don't like in places you shouldn't be, that kind of stuff. Now, I'm only talking about addiction, Patty. I'm not talking about somebody who can have a drink at the end of it, relax, enjoy with friends, and go on home out of it. No problem to nobody. I'm talking about those that are whose who's addiction ripped themselves you know alcohol is a great spot remover but unfortunately it removes your money and your friends and your job and your family and your driver's license so yeah that's sort of a you know a number that would be ready for somebody to call if somebody wants to say i really don't want to do this i don't think i can do it myself you know give it up i suppose you could call alcoholics anonymous i suppose when it comes to that stage it's absolutely a mental health issue at that point, so maybe 811 would be an outlet. I know they don't do direct addiction services, but when we're talking about someone who's reached that precipice, I would imagine 811 can be helpful. Uh, AA is a local number. I just popped it up. It's 579-6091. So other than that, I don't think there's a dedicated alcohol addiction support hotline. Yeah. But do you, do you think that this is probably growing in severity, the problem that we're having right now, people choosing to use alcohol or other drugs to sort of block things out of their lives? Uh, probably. It's all long been a tool of self-medication. Sales at the NLC have increased year over year. We know what it's meant during the pandemic for alcohol sales, cannabis sales, other drug use matter. So, yeah, the numbers are really quite clear right across the country. Yeah, it, seems to, it just seems to be that way. And when you hear a story that's going on on BOCM's website now, and you spoke about this morning about the tra- tra- tragic loss of life, I'm sure nobody set out that morning to get blotted drunk and drive on the wrong side of the road at an excessive rate of speed. Nobody nobody sets out to do that. And, uh, boy, I, I don't know, it just seems this time of year for, for people, there's so much pressure on them, so much you know, pressure to go to office parties, to drink, to go downtown, to drink, and uh, and and they they just find it very difficult to be able to uh, say no when perhaps they should. So, anyway, Patty, I just wanted to raise it. I mean, there's a there's a lot of unsure resources out there for those who choose not to drink, those who choose to say that in in, uh, in their particular lives, alcohol or other drugs, I mean, that's what's going on with a lot of the homelessness that we're seeing right now is that, well, I think one person said he, he didn't want to go to a home because he couldn't drink there. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very, very difficult situation. Patty, thank you. If I don't speak to you between now and you go off air for a week, have a great Christmas and New Year's and uh, pretty well, I, I guess that's it. I, I didn't make a very clear point, but uh, for those who choose not to use, to spark one up or bottoms up, there are alternatives out there, and there's nothing wrong with not drinking. Of course, I will add to that, uh, given some of the uh, party scenes that we'll see unfold during the Christmas season, is also people have issues with food. So don't force feed somebody, whether it be a joint, a beer, a drink, a glass of wine, or food, because that can be a problem for many. I know one person in particular that they cannot force themselves to go to these Christmas gatherings because they have a problem with food. Yeah. Anyway. It's it's a real trigger. Yeah, I agree with you. Anyway, Patty, thank you and uh, all your listeners as well. I hope they have a Merry Christmas. And uh, and when it comes to addictions, uh, you know, it's okay to choose not to use. Thanks for the time. Merry Christmas to you and yours, Mike. Bye-bye, Patty. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's uh, keep rolling here. Let's go to line number five. Agnes, you're on the air. Good day, and how are you today? I'm fine, thanks for asking. How about you? Well, I'm just listening to your last caller, and it's too bad that we can't get 
some of those people that overindulge in alcohol to attend with some first-time responders or fire departments at time. Like I have a son-in-law and my daughter are on the fire department and first-time responders, and the stuff they witness is unreal responding to accidents and that, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe it may help someone that is overindulging. My, but my reason for calling today, I have an acquaintance in a long-term care or personal home in St. John's. I'm told I should not say the name of the home, but anyway, my complaint is in in talking to this person, um, She's, like, old, like, my next step, I guess, will be long-term care, and that's why I'm pretty active in this stuff. She's, if she should fall out of bed or get up or go around the house, around the, the home there, they don't have a buzzer. And she cannot get up on her own. And in the meantime, like, if she should get out of bed at night and fall and don't have a buzzer... She's told, as from my understanding, she's told that she cannot call 911. So she may be, if she should fall, and this has been going on for like four, five, six weeks. Uh, The buzzers are not fixed yet or put in or whatever they got to do with them. And I mean, like there's some... Older people are getting treated worse every day. I, myself, I say it so many times. If you get old, you may as well take to it and shoot you. I mean, I, uh, Patty, I've thrown into you before about how I feel old people are treated, and it's unreal to think that you're in those personal homes, you're paying really good dollars to be there, and you can't protect yourself if you fall, if you can't get up. There's no help. It's unreal to think that our government is let that go on. So, are you still there? So, is this a government home? No, not a government home. It's a private home, but but the government is ruling our land and the businesses or whatever. It should be it should be checked into. So I'm not entirely sure what the issue is with the buzzer. So there's just some technical problem where they're currently not working. Is that what it is? Currently not working. They haven't been working for, I'll, I'll say, four to six weeks. They haven't been working. And the inquiries that are made, they we're just told they're not, re- they're not ready yet. They're not ready yet. And there's no push on them. But, I mean, what what? do my friend do what does she do if if she I mean if she's in the condition that if she, she, if she falls she just can't get up you know yeah and you don't want to be on the ground just hollering out for help so no, I, I mean they don't have <clears throat> they don't have staff to be going around I'm sure to check in every hour or even if they do or every couple of hours or whatever I mean she could say if she gets if she goes to bed at eight o'clock at night and she falls at nine. She could be there till the next morning. Yeah, you know, surely not good enough. I, I suppose you told David the uh, home we're talking about. 
Yes. Okay. He asked me not to say the name of the home. Yeah, there's a variety of liability issues as to why that's the case uh, in yes, media. Uh, but, Agnes, what I will do is I'll ask David to give me that information privately, and I'll call the home myself. I appreciate that very much, and that was my reasoning, Colin. And, by the way, I hope you have a, a good Christmas. The very same to you, Agnes. And so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to put you on hold. David wants to ask you uh, some more detailed questions. Okay. Okay, so good luck with this, and I will follow up. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Agnes. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Agnes on hold there for you, David. Not going to squeeze one in because we're at 10.59 and 10 seconds. But for those of you who are liking and wanting to support VOCM Cares and the terrific programs and services they provide the community over the course of the year, also a chance to win some money. The VOCM Cares 50-50 is on the go. I think the prize pot now is somewhere in the neighborhood of $26,000. I think that's what I heard Ben Murphy say this morning. So if you like the 50-50, and who doesn't like a good 50-50? Pretty sizable package to be won here. So all you have to do is go to VOCMcares.com and get in on our annual 50-50 draw there because as we all know i mean vocm cares has long been a key component in the fundraising and the charitable uh, push here in the city of st john's and surrounding area so the 50 50 is at vocmcares.com let's get a check in on the twitter box we're vocm open line you know what to do follow us there our email address is open line at vocm.com but my fave is when you join us live on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind like rod he wants to talk about speeding in school zones right after the news don't go away your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Rod, you're on the air. Hey, buddy. How are you? Doing okay. How you doing? Great. Thank you. Patty, I want to talk about the prevalence of... Uh, people speeding through school zones and uh, in particular Carwood uh, where there's an elementary school I you know most days I passed up Carwood at going and coming every day whether it's going to work or an appointment or something and again this morning you know I I went through there at 25 or 30 kilometers and two cars passed me like I was stopping and uh, I see this on a regular basis. I see it all around the city, actually, how people speed through these zones. Uh, you know, at some point, they're going to kill some kids. Right? It's going to happen. Uh, you know, and I'm not quite sure why uh, they feel that it's okay. Uh, uh, you know, and, and I've, I've leaned on the horn to slow them down. I've gotten the finger and told off at the end of the when they catch up to me or when they I, I catch up to them at a light or something and I, I, I'm just not sure like why we see this every day and why people just won't slow down going through these school zones or slow down period I live in a neighborhood school uh, area and I see it absolutely every single day they've been they've had to put in uh, some speed bumps to try to slow people down what has that meant they slow down slightly for the speed bump and then they hit the gas again before they get to the next one so it really hasn't slowed down traffic necessarily where I live and it is frustrating because you know eventually we're going to hear or going to see that headline kids struck and killed uh, in the school zone by someone who's speeding so again i'm with you i just don't really get it you know for the time it takes to navigate a school zone you're really not going to you know jeopardize your arrival time by any more than a few seconds so just relax 
Patty, absolutely. Like the time it takes to go through the school zone doing the required speed, the posted speed, or to speed through it, you're right. It might be you might be gaining ten seconds. Um, you know, and and uh, recently I was going through that curve with school zone, and I was and you know there was people obeying obeying the speed limit in both lanes, and some guy behind me was leaning on the horn for me to get out of his way. Right? You know, like, are you serious? Uh, you know, now the city of uh, of uh, Paradise, the town of Paradise, had their uh, town police officer parked there uh, for quite some time. Now, I've been away for uh, uh, almost two weeks, and I'm, I'm just home again. And uh, so I noticed that he wasn't there today, but, of course, school was in when I drove by. So there was no need for him to be there, but I've... But they did have someone there parked in that police vehicle, and you would see cars hit the brakes when they saw the vehicle. Like, like, what's up with this? You know, slow down. There's no need of it. It's a fair message, Rod, and hopefully people will pay attention to it. And even though school is not in, doesn't mean that there might not be a kid out and about, you know, going home or who knows what, why there might be that case. But the school zone issue is frustrating. Same thing with school buses. If a school bus has deployed its stop sign and the red lights are flashing, it doesn't matter what direction you're going in, you have to stop. You know, you're absolutely right. And that's uh, the, the, where I see the school bus thing happen every day is uh, uh, down in, uh, on your way to uh, just before the uh, town hall and the manuals there. Uh, there's a school bus stops in that section there, and, and people blow past that going both ways regularly. Anyways, Patty, look, you know what? I really appreciate you taking my call. Uh, uh, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, buddy. Same to you, Rod. Thanks a lot. Thank you, man. Bye-bye. You, okay, bye-bye. All right, so we talked about off the top, you know, violence in schools. And generally speaking, we focus in on student versus student violence. But apparently it's more prevalent than I even thought. And that's the violence experienced by the province's teachers. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the NLTA president, Trent Langdon. Trent, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, good morning. I just want to reference that previous speaker. Uh, kudos to him for bringing that forward. Uh, you just you. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I see it every day because I have to go down a school zone road to get in or out of my neighborhood. So there you yep. go. Yep. Uh, you know, I knew that this had happened in schools uh, sometimes where a student lashes out at a teacher versus simply lashing out at another student. Just how common is it? It's, uh, it's, it's very common. Uh, yeah, I, as I said on previous interviews uh, this week, it's been a heavy week. Uh, um, obviously, we had two teachers. Uh, unrelated to anything we were doing as an association come forward on their own accord and speak about their own individual circumstances. Quite uh, quite worrisome to hear, and uh, but not surprising to me. I hear frequently of teachers that are being hurt on the job. Uh, severity is on the increase of the injuries as well as the frequency. Um, and, uh, you know, it is the kind of thing where... I want to differentiate as well, Patty, that um, we're talking about students uh, from various sectors of our of our society and from our environments here. Obviously, if you're working in a school system where uh, there's high need students, and meaning you know you might, they might have a, a, a disorder of some sort, or or they may be on the spectrum, whatever, whatever. What comes with that is is maybe at times aggressive tendencies, uh, behavioral concerns. But as staff, we're you know we're trained to deal with those things. Um, uh, but the problem lies in the resourcing is such that there's so many of these children that we're responsible for that to effectively implement behavior plans and response protocols and risk assessments, it, it doesn't happen as it should. Therefore, the, the, it increases the likelihood of, of violence. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, we have. Um, 
uh, the, you know, those students who, who may not have a special need of any sort, but are coming in, say, with with uh, with uh, drugs in their system, or uh, have a very difficult home life, and, and that aggressive piece comes out, uh, and uh, they're often in the regular population within our schools, and we're seeing that on the increase as well. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're seeing significant physical injuries uh, to teachers. We're seeing, uh, uh, you know, teachers having to wear protective gear depending on what where they're working. You know, Kevlar sleeves, that type of thing. Um, but again, that's that's the lay of the land for certain individuals we work with. But injury is injury. And what happens when one of these incidents takes place? So uh, our response as an association, we obviously work directly with the teacher, um, and uh, you know what that might mean is uh, uh, employee assistance supports. Uh, but you know right from the from the gate, it's it's OHNS. Um, so occupational health and safety are is everything being done in that school, and it's through the school district that we we push to say, look, is the school district doing the proper risk assessments? Are the resources in place? Um, what can change in the future to guarantee that this cannot happen again? So obviously they. You know, we often say if it's, if it's predictable, it's preventable. So we work individually with schools. Uh, we push government. We push the school districts to say, look, something has got to change here. Uh, and we work with the individual teacher to, to, to maximize their safety in those rooms. Then we've got the, the global advocacy that we as an association uh, continue to push, whether it's work with CSSD, work with uh, uh, justice, uh, uh, education. So uh, it's multi-layered, obviously. So during collective bargaining, we know what the contract looks like now, 2% yep. over four years yep. and a $2,000 bonus. I guess we'll call it. But when you talked about class composition and class size, how did that go during the negotiations? I'll be honest with you. There was uh, what well, we were at the table, as you know, for well over a year, and um, uh, that was there on the table right till the bitter end. Um, as with any negotiation, it comes to a point uh, where you say, as a group, is this the best possible deal that we can get in this current climate? It came to that where our team felt it, and it, it we came to that point. Uh, we had come to that point, and we were going to bring it back to our membership for for uh, either acceptance or or uh, to uh, decline the offer and uh, it, it was ended up being ratified um, but you know collective bargaining is just one piece of this puzzle uh, class size and composition has never been in our contract not saying that it shouldn't if i could write the the contract it certainly would be in there uh, but um, you know there's other means there's other you know there's memorandums there's other things that can happen to ensure that resourcing takes place because this is a what worries me the most about this right now this has been a hot topic this week but in this province it's very common for stuff to become uh, become super today we can't afford for education to be super today where okay it's, it's, it's a hot topic right now and it won't pop up again until february this needs to be on the front page every single day in this province as far as i'm concerned education is not just violence in schools it's not just mental health but it's every single family in this province is impacted when schools aren't running as they should whether you're a grandparent you're an aunt or an uncle or certainly if you're a parent uh, and if we want to look at the long-term success of this province the education system is where it lies of course it is <clears throat> and i know that you use my line all the time which yeah, i appreciate yeah, yeah. but let's just get down to the brass tacks here so it feels really mean-spirited even when i think it and then say it out loud here on the program talking about what the inclusive model looks like and whether or not it's working there would probably be lack of political will to say okay it's not working it's been in place since you know i guess march 2009 it doesn't make you a bad person to evaluate whether one thing or another is working and in this case whether it be the relationship between the decline in math science and reading score the violence in school the time that our teachers occupied with a handful of students versus the entirety of the class something is obviously not working so what do you say to the inclusive model 
Well, I, I, I was listening to your show this morning, and I heard you had said that no one truly wants to say that inclusive ed is not working. I'll be the first to say inclusive ed is not working in this province. Uh, the philosophy of inclusive ed is, is strong. Uh, the responsive teaching and learning model, which is there phil philosophically, is strong. Um, but as soon as, as, for example, a reading specialist cannot do their work because they're, they're in a position where they're gone to cover a grade three class, um, then that student who was assigned to them for that day doesn't longer have service. When a, a student assistant, uh, when a student assistants are assigned to a building and a, a, a building has, say, five student assistants assigned to the building for 25 children, say, for example, it's only the, the kids with the most severe needs are going to see those student assistants. So parents have, have I'll say it, the illusion that their kids are getting support when they're not. And so that's a significant piece as well. IRT support, instructional resource teachers, that's another piece of the puzzle where if you are responsible for a bunch of different kids in a room, and we know full well there's, there's rooms in this province where upwards of 50% of the kids have diagnosed exceptionalities or diagnosed uh, diagnoses, um, you know, how can you meet the meet these children where they are unless imagine there's no RT to service that room for the day. You got a classroom teacher who has to revamp assessments, who has to teach to the to the child. Um, kids are slipping through the cracks, and I hate to use cliches because that's not the kind of person I am. But in this case, it seems to fit. Um, uh, and so we are ultimately it's it's a it's a very under, it's an under-resourced system we have right now where it, it's not apparent. Obviously, if an emergency room is shut down, it's apparent. Or there's no doctors available for 100,000 people. In this, that's obvious, and it's, it's life or death. But our schools are hurting so much behind the scenes, and teachers are working very as best they can with what they have. Um, so I'll be the first to say, you know, inclusive ed is definitely not working uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, and I think maybe what I was leaning towards there is our politicians being willing to say it. Of course. Because there's, you know, they have a different calculation than you would have and I would have and teachers would have. So I guess that's where I was trying to go, maybe clumsily so this morning. Uh, last one before we let you go. So I have brought this up countless times. I have never really heard much in the way of uh, uh, feedback from politicians and or the general public. But to your knowledge, since 2019, when Jackie Lake Kavanaugh spoke to the issue of chronic absenteeism, has anything changed? Because until we know why you're absent, then we're going to be able to do little to nothing about it. And certainly, if the numbers are 60, uh, 75 percent of chronically absent grade sixers don't graduate high school, this is a bigger issue than people are given the credit for as well. So the question would be, has anything changed with how we address chronic absenteeism? Yeah, and just to your previous point, Patty, I, I know we are, where you were headed with that comment. Uh, I know the politicians are the ones who need to say this, but with one other voice like myself, maybe we'll finally get a politician to agree to it. But anyway, I'll say that point. Uh, but with regards to absenteeism, uh, I would argue, you know, uh, we see absenteeism occurring in primary elementary school, and you referenced that in a previous interview as well. And uh, we often have kids coming into my most of my experiences at the junior high level coming into us with days and days and days of time missed, and so that you can only imagine the learning loss. So you talk about PISA scores as much as you want, um, but it's those kids too. You know, kids coming in in grade six already having picked up uh, vaping and cigarette smoking and uh, and drug use. 
And so it's all interconnected. And so the absenteeism, there's no one truly responsible for it is the problem, Patty. Uh, the school system is not responsible for it. It seems like we're the only people who care about it, meaning um, teachers are saying, where's, where's the student? They're calling home, trying to find out where they are. The guidance counselors, administrators are having meetings with social workers. Where are these students? How come they're not showing up? But in the end, uh, calls are made to child protection to say, okay, this child hasn't been in school for three weeks. Often said, it's not to mandate a CSSD for uh, or child protection to guarantee that a kid is, is in school. So who does it truly lie with? You know, these kids are just, uh, they, they end up either quitting, you know how it works, or they become such a, a deep concern and such a heavy load for teachers in the system when they do show up uh, that how can we expect them to even look at post-secondary? They're, they're a weight on the system. So it's another example. If you don't properly resource and do what you can to keep these children in school, this needs to be a multi-agency approach. We can talk about the Department of Education as much as we want, but unless CSSD, Justice, healthcare, uh, Department of Health, all of these groups come together to prioritize education in this province because we all got a part to play maybe we need some truancy officers <laughs> they may not go astray i tell you trent as usual appreciate the time thank you all the best uh, for christmas and a new year buddy same to you trent take care Thanks, buddy. all right bye right, trent landon is the president of the nlta very quickly the most recent stats and data are out from the canadian mortgage and housing corporation not good so as this person says uh, the tale of two provinces british columbia housing starts are up 11 percent in 2023 versus 2022 in ontario housing starts are down four percent uh, versus uh, 2022 but here's some of the numbers bc 4165 housing starts followed by nova scotia with 1251 in this province we're uh, back 117 versus last year quebec Minus 16,422. Ontario minus 5,200. 5, so not necessarily in line with the numbers that the uh, mortgage corporation said we're going to need to build by the end of the decade. But there you go. There's the housing start numbers. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Jessica. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. Thanks for having me on again. No problem. I just want to talk about having the creatures pet food donation drive to your listeners one more time uh, before Christmas. Um, so many people know about the you know the significant increase that our our local human food banks and, and human charities in general are facing, but you know not everyone is aware how much the animal rescues you know are also struggling, or even that there is a, a food bank for pets in St. John's that Heavenly Features runs. Um, you know a lot of the thing, uh, and, and this is me not trying to disparage the charities that, that help humans because they certainly do wonderful work. Uh, the gathering place comes to mind as a great example of that. Um, but it, it's just a fact that a lot of human charities do get um, some form of government funding, and the um, the animal rescues do not, with the exception of um, a couple of the branches, the SPCAs, and even they hardly get anything. So when it comes to rescuing animals, we usually do have to raise every cent. So this is why our annual pet food and donation drive at Christmas is hugely important to us because we really rely on it to get enough food and funds to, you know, see us through the, the lean winter months when you really can't do much fundraising in, you know, January, February, and even March when you're that close to the holidays. Um, so just wanted to get the word out there again that um, we really do need pet food. Um, we go through little tons of, of pet food and litter. Um, all of the food that uh, we have coming in not just feeds the animals we rescue, which there's always you know, 60 to 100, um, but we give out a lot of food to people who are struggling to keep their pets fed. Um, so we're really hoping people will show up. We're open 12 to 8 p.m. tomorrow and Sunday. We're also open today, most of the day, until basically 8 o'clock. 
uh, and all next week as well. You can find all the details on our website, which is heavenlycreatures.ca. Um, yeah, we, we're seeing, you know, certainly some donations coming in, but people are hurting and donations are down. I mean, it was slow starting off last year, and by this time last year we had probably about $10,000 more in donations than we've had thus far this year. So I'm really hoping people are listening. And I know a lot of people have already chosen their, their charitable giving for the year, but if there's anybody who hasn't or who's got a bit extra to spare, they can log on to our website, again, heavenlycreatures.ca, you know, make a donation so that when we're getting low, we can buy another case of dog food or case of cat food or pay for an exam. Uh, if I haven't already said it, Patty, our vet bills were almost $175,000 last year. So, you. without government, yeah, I mean, no government funding. That's a like, you know, I'm not trying to sound whiny or anything, but it, it is. It's a lot of money to have to raise. And we also don't get a lot of um, corporate support. We've never really gone after corporate support. We're very much sort of a grassroots community organization that um, essentially, as I always say to people, we kind of $20 donation our way to the $300,000 a year it, it takes to cover all the vet bills and the food and keep the phones on, that kind of thing. Right, almost totally volunteer run. So we only have you know one staff person, and that's me. And I didn't take a, a salary for the first 17 years, and I, I hate to take a small salary now, but I have to because it's I'm doing this like 12 hours a day to <laughs> try to you know help out. Fair enough. But, uh, yeah, it's yeah. No, um, I I live with my mother for most of the time that Heavenly Creatures has existed, so didn't have to take a salary. But, um, yeah, basically everybody else is a volunteer. And, again, vet bills by far are the, you know, the biggest expense. It's just, I mean, for example, we had two cats come in a few days ago, and there was nothing wrong with them. They just needed their basic things, you know, their spays and their exams and their feline leukemia testing. And, I mean, you're talking $1,000 for the basics on two cats, right? So... It, it, it adds up quickly. So, yeah, just really, I don't mean to go on too long here, but just again, for anybody listening, we need, you know, wet cat food, wet dog food, scoopable litter, you know, kitten food, um, treats, essentially pretty much everything except for dry dog food. We're not too too badly off for dry dog food right now, but everything else we could uh, we could really use. And again, 292 on Marchant Road, heavenlycreatures.ca, and we're open every day on, up and sh- actually up to and including Christmas Eve. I appreciate the uh, time this morning, Jessica. Fingers crossed that you get some donations coming in the door. All right. Thanks a million. You're welcome. Take care. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know, I, I, I would imagine when you hear the pleas for the human food banks and some of the other charities that are, you know, constantly out there looking and actively trying to raise money for their programs and services, sometimes it can feel a bit overwhelming. There's no doubt about it. And I understand that many people are who are listening this morning are stressed when it comes to their financial status. Anyway, uh, oh, yeah, one issue that someone asked me to broach here on the show, which I'm happy to do, is, you know, how does it make you feel? Like, people want to be generous if they can, right? So you go to the grocery store, and you get to the till, and you know how expensive every item is, and you got a $50 bill, and it barely covers the bottom of a shopping bag, and then they ask if you want to make a donation. You know, it, I guess many people will say, you know, I don't want to be embarrassed uh, here by saying no, and people behind me think, well, cheapskate, you know, some money for the food bank or the Janeway or whatever the case may be. Do you think that's an unfair practice? It feels a little bit because every, I say yes every single time, you know, not for big dollars, obviously, but I just don't want to be feel like I'm embarrassed by saying no to ask uh, for a couple of bucks for the food bank. Anyway, what do you think of that? Let's take a break. When we come back, Barbara's in the queue to respond to Trent Langdon, and Leo wants to talk about seniors staying in their own home. Don't go away. 
Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Leo, you're on the air. Good morning, Petty. Morning to you. I got a wish today. It's not a, not a Christmas wish either. I wish next crowd those uh, politicians or, or wannabe politicians that comes on talking about keeping seniors in their home and gets a severe case of diarrhea and goes jaw-locked because I'm sick of hearing them at it. And they, all they do is talk about it. You know, it's it, it, unreal. I know there and well they come on, this is something else that they talk about too, is people uh, help build the province and help build the country. Now, for my part of it, I don't say I help build the province very much, but I know this, when I was 15 years old, there was no, go- no going to the government looking for money uh, or, or uh, whatever. But uh, I, I, uh, I, I did, I, I, I worked for everything that I had and I suppose I helped in a small way <clears throat> and excuse me <clears throat> my own father died in a ditch digging in a ditch that he was working in so that was a bit of a plus too it was a plus? plus that was for the, for the for, well I suppose the wrong word there Okay, so what's the point we're making, Leo? That uh, politicians talk a lot about this but don't act yes, on it? They talk a lot about keeping people in their own homes. And what they're doing here now, you take people, there's people, there's seniors that are trying to live in their own homes that they built. And, 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 and over the, when, you know, for years ago, and, and over the years they upgraded it, and now they're turning around these municipal councils, they're paying $200 a month to live in their own home in taxes. So that's one way that they could help the people of the seniors if they wanted to, is, 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 is cut the taxes from them. And they got 65. Okay. Uh, so, look, I think it's pragmatic to move towards more supports for staying in your own home. A couple of things. I mean, it's where you're most comfortable. You're surrounded by your buddies and your family and your friends. Obviously, familiar surroundings. Probably be happier. And then there's a the cost savings. Without question, some additional supports. Like some people are two or three hours a day of home care, additional home care away from being able to stay in their own home. Consequently, if they don't get it, we put them in a long-term care facility. It costs us an arm and a leg. And they're not as happy as they might be if they stay home this, this, this is exactly right i mean say and, and and as far as home care see you know on on say just on a you haven't got a company pension or anything like that you've only got just a, the basic pension you can't afford home care you can't afford home care understood yet go ahead all i said was i understand yeah, I mean, you see, if you're, it, it, it's, 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 I don't know, it's a hard thing to understand because, uh, say, for instance, now if I went into a personal care home, the government will subsidize me $1,000 for going, you know, for living there. Yet, I mean, say, they can't help out the seniors that's trying to beat your way along and, and living in their own homes. Yeah. Now, I mean, say, you're doing very good. We're doing a lot better than we did, be, uh, say, 30 or 40, 50 years ago. We're still in problem. We're still not. What, what I don't understand, what boots me, is the fact that people living in their own homes have got to pay $200 or more a month to live in their own homes for these municipal councils. Well, I suppose, I mean, there's not a whole lot of taxation options beyond the regressive uh, property taxes that we pay because, when, you know, even if you're a senior living in your own home, you probably still need to avail of water or sewer yes, for the roads to be kept up and the obvious. 
Yes, but Patty, you, you've been paying that probably for 60 or 70 years. So, I mean, say you gave your cup of blood. Yeah, and I know there's a discount for seniors paying property tax in the city of St. John's. I don't know about elsewhere. Yeah, well, that could be little or nothing. I think it's 25% if I'm not mistaken. 25%? Oh, that sounds good. I think that's what it is. I'd have to look well, it up to verify. I'm, I'm looking at these fellows now. I mean, say these politicians today, and I, I'm thinking, buddy, if your brain was gunpowder, you wouldn't have enough to blow your nose because you take that bed dental plan they got in now for seniors. You qualify at uh, 77 years, or 80, uh, 87, is it, right now? Yeah, it's a, such a weird number to just pluck out yeah. of thin air. I mean, especially when we're talking about life expectancy. You know, whether or not a, a whole lot of seniors at uh, the age of 87 plus now, there's coverage for dentures and what have you, but it's just such a strange one, I suppose. <coughs> they're trying to test drive it to see how it's going to work uh, because there's fewer age, seniors over the age of 87 than, say, for instance, if they had to choose 65. So I'm imagining that's what it's all about because it's pretty unclear how easy it's going to be to even enroll for the program and then how the billing is going to work and I mean Canada Life made off like bandits a $750 million contract for evaluating and uh, distributing claim money so good for them I suppose I mean if they were going to help us out I mean say you take like myself for instance say over the course of my lifetime I've had two sets of dentures okay now I probably had 25 or 30 sets of glasses so if they're going to help you, they should have went to you, you know, uh, probably went on, uh, and uh, supplied you with uh, glasses. That would have been help. But now it's dental plan. I don't know how it works out. But uh, I, 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 if I was, and another thing is, you got you uh, you can apply for it uh, under ninety thousand dollars a year. If you're making up ninety thousand dollars a year, you can apply for it. Well, if I just make $90,000 a year, I'd buy some d- d- dentals for some of the politicians. Well, I mean, that's also a net uh, family income of $90,000 or less, not necessarily just for an individual. But if you're a single person living on your own and your uh, net income is 90000 or less, then you are eligible. And for those who make $70,000 or less, there is no copay, which is an important calculation as well. They say God acts in some strange ways, and that's the strangest politicians, for sure. I appreciate the call, Leo. Anything else? Anytime. Merry Christmas to you, buddy. Take it easy, and Merry Christmas to you. You too, man. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's keep rolling here. We'll go to line number one. Barbara, you're on the air. Um, Regarding the man talking about the problems with student absenteeism and other problems in the classroom, as a former teacher, pupil, and parent, I say the responsibility is the student and his or her parents. It's not all those other people. The parents brought the child into the world, and the responsibility for managing that child is that child and his or her parents. Thank you. Uh, Okay, Barbara. But I don't think anybody said different, though, did they? Nobody mentioned parents. That no, the, the, everybody was mentioning all the other organizations and involved with handling students, and not one person said parents. And for me, they're the number one, or we are, the number one people other than the actual student. Yeah, the, my children are my responsibility, 100%. I think that kind of goes without saying. But well, the, nobody said it. But the problem is, we don't know why some children are absent. That's the, that was the purpose of the conversation. Not to say that, you know, the parents have dropped the ball, but Trent did indeed man- mention that. You know, they'll ch- call Child Protective Services, which indeed is an examination of the parents' responsibility or lack thereof. So you're right. No one's going to argue that point. My children are 
are absolutely my responsibility yes. until they get to school and then they're your responsibility as the yes. teacher. But yes. uh, that's a fair point, Barbara. I accept that. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, quickly on the, you know, being asked for a donation at the till. So <clears throat> Ted makes an important point here, and this is something I've considered, and I didn't say it, but here it goes. So when you make a donation at the till, I'm pretty sure this is the case. So you make a donation to the food bank or two bucks for the January or whatever the case may be, as opposed to making that do donation directly and getting your charitable tax credit. When you make those donations, I think, uh, I think Ted's right here, is that the massive corporation gets the, the charitable tax credit. So I give them the money. Right? They collect it all. They make a whopping big donation. Just pick a round number of $100,000 to the Janeway or to the Community Food Sharing Association. And who gets the tax break? Not me and you and our two bucks. Uh, the corporation, I'm pretty sure they get it. That's a good point. So maybe saying no becomes a little bit easier if indeed that's the case. And I think it is. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Lionel, you're on the air. Uh, good day, Patty. Good day to you. Greetings. The very Listen, same man, I'm, I'm trained in uh, focused expressive psychotherapy. When I look at what we're about as a, a government, a society, a community like St. John's, we seem to be seriously addicted to chaos and turmoil. Nobody seems to be open to what does it take to improve the workability of what we're doing here in this province. What do you mean by that? I believe we're, con we're totally addicted to the turmoil and the chaos rather than looking for workability. Okay, so can you give me an example so I have a clearer understanding of where you're going? <laughs> a clear understanding. Well, uh, to, to see what the... Uh, both the bus company and the uh, government of St. John's uh, look at doing with the bus system that doesn't work effectively for the people, uh, why they don't look to improve that as opposed to just accepting the unworkability of it. Does that make sense to you? It does, but I, I question as to whether or not that's what's actually happening. Oh, it definitely is happening from this perspective. There's no not a doubt about it at all. Are you anyway, a, are you a user? I'm going to do with it. Pardon? Are you a user of the Metro bus? No, not now. I was years ago, but not anymore. It was even chaos then. Yeah. It certainly has been a deficient service over the years. I guess with the improved ridership numbers and the lack of the, all the funding that used to flow from the city to Metrobus, and they are sitting on a $3.3 million surplus, which you can only imagine, given their collective best interest, Metrobus and the city, to improve the system that's getting more demand. Hopefully, maybe I'm a cockeyed optimist here late on a Friday morning, but yeah. hopefully that means that they'll improve operations, you know, enhance efficiencies, uh, more uh, Metrobus on demand routes, more and better zip routes, more and better uh, bus shelters. So maybe I'm just looking at it from the upside as opposed to taking in some of the historical context of the operations of Metrobus. But if people are using it, then it's got to be accessible. No problem. Yeah, it doesn't appear to be given the information we're given. 
Yeah, and it's an interesting way to put it. We're addicted to the chaos and the turmoil. You're probably not wrong. You know, I think a lot of things have changed. You know, people's attitudes towards each other and about uh, general topics of societal concern or politics. People are angrier than they ever were. I mean, like, for instance, the way people use social media, there's some people that I swear they thrive on being angry. I personally don't have the brain power or the brain space for the anger that people are displaying just all day long, every single day. It must be exhausting. Yes, I would imagine it would be. It appears to be from this perspective anyway. And Lionel, I just want to go back to where you said you were. You have training and background in what? Can you say that again? Uh, focused expressive psychotherapy. It's a part of the, uh, the recovery from addictions. And we have to look at how we are actually performing as human beings. Is this the way we want? Do we want to be always in conflict with someone else instead of looking for increased ways to find workability? Well, I make an effort to work smarter, not harder. I try to avoid chaos and conflict and turmoil as best I can. Maybe I'm just forced to do that because of what I do for a living. But, yeah, yeah, I know where you're coming from, and I appreciate the time. Would you like to say anything else? No, that's it. Have a wonderful holiday. You too, Lionel. All the best. Same to you. Take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, there we go. Let's go to line number two. Brian, you're on the air. Hi, Brian. Hello. Hello. Yes. Hi, Patty. Hi there. Yes, how you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? Not bad. First of all, I admire what you do. It's a, it's a tough job, and uh, I'm not going to take up much of your time. No problem. Go ahead. I just want to I just want to throw a little warning out to people who have vehicle problems. Uh, they should probably take it to somebody who's a professional instead of a backyard mechanic. In a lot of cases, if it's going to be a big engine job or transmission. As as I just found out, uh, <laughs> I had a transmission that went on a truck I just bought, and then I took it to a guy, and of course I'm not going to mention the uh, name. And then the guy, he won't even answer my texts or calls, and I tell you, buddy, it's pretty frustrating. So here, you know, you're out 2700 three grand. So I just want to throw a heads out to people. If you got a problem with your transmission or your, your engine, take it to a professional. A hundred percent. Absolutely. And I mean, I'll add to it. The whole issue regarding backyard mechanics, they're not as useful as they once were, given the way that the manufacturers build the, uh, the automobiles these days. You need specialized tools and diagnostic systems and all the rest of it. So backyard mechanics can't even do much of what they were doing in years past. But it's a good oh, recommendation exactly. to go to a pro. No, exactly. And I just because I just got recently screwed, and I'm probably going to end up in small claims court, and I got proof that that the people didn't know what the hell they were doing. Uh, I got the proof, so I'm probably going to end up in small claims court or something, but uh, I'm just ticked, and I'm not the type to show up with a baseball bat or nothing like that, uh, maybe in the old days, but <laughs> that that's the worst thing you want to do. But uh, No, I, I just want to give a heads up to people, like... Uh, if you got a problem with a transmission, somebody says, oh, I can do it, or your engine troubles, uh, you know, yeah, like exactly. At one time, there's guys that knew what to do in the backyard, and uh, yeah, and like brake job, and bang, it's perfect. But uh, if it's if it's if it's going to amount to a big expense, you know, getting upwards to three grand, I mean, that's something you don't want to 
you know, with no receipt and stuff, right? And then, and then they turn around when there's a problem. They don't answer you. And the last thing you want to do is show up on their doorstep, and uh, and then you get arrested. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, and uh, this is a very general statement, but you need a couple of different professionals that you trust in your world, an accountant and a mechanic. Yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly. Brian, yeah, but, good to have you on the show. I'm sorry that you got uh, your word screwed. No, no, but uh, no, that's okay. I just I want to pass it on so nobody else gets, you know, like I'm just I like people to be cautious. And and by the way, Merry Christmas to you, Patty. And uh, I, I really admire the work you do. It's it's a tough job you do. I appreciate so. that, and Merry Christmas to you and yours. So take care. Thank All right, you, thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's roll line number four. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. I just wanted to respond to Barbara, the teacher, former teacher that called in. I'm a parent of a child with autism, and she says it should be up to the parents. Let me tell you, we fight from kindergarten to grade 12 for help for our children, and we are still fighting. And maybe it's teachers with her attitude that is not helping the situation. How dare her say that? I know so many parents that bend over backwards for their children trying to get help, and just the resources are not there. I think her point was, you know, when we're trying to blame the schools or the teachers or the Department of Education for things regarding absenteeism, I think her ultimate or summary point of my children are my responsibility is not wrong, is it? Well, listen, my child only goes two days a week because he just doesn't have the supports. Uh, he hasn't been there for a month now because he got sick. I was going to send him today, but was informed, thankfully, that the, COVID, the teacher has COVID, another thing the government should be doing. But I can't send him like that because his immune system is so low. That's all I need him to get again. I mean, we're failing on so many levels, Patty. We are failing with, with the school board, with the government not no having enough support we are just failing and you know what someday some other part of society has to look after these kids when the parents who love and care for them are no longer here yeah i mean there's going to be you know, separate incidents or circumstances that, you know, maybe additional supports are required. And, of course, that's true, whether it be in school or possibly in the home. But I think our general point was not to say that 100% of circumstances do not need anybody but any, any other intervention but the parents' own responsibility. So I get where she's coming from. But if there are things that are, you know, requiring additional layers and levels of support, then fair enough. But And obviously she offended you, but I think I understood her ultimate point well my son would be in school five days a week if there was support if he had one-on-one support but since grade six that one-on-one support goes from one-on-one to maybe one-on-twelve or one-on-thirteen I mean there's no support and if you have a child with high high anxiety you know you're, you're teaching them to regress which is what happened you know to the point that he doesn't even want to go because there's nobody basically with him he can sit there all day like a shadow on a chair and nobody cares I appreciate the time, and I wish things were easier for you, but I appreciate the call. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, so here we go. Just about out of time. So I, 
if anyone knows for sure about the charitable tax credit that corporations may get when we make a donation at the till and ask uh, repeatedly, uh, good comment from Dara. For charities, though, those kinds of donations can be really helpful. It takes a lot of man hours managing soliciting, recording, and responding to donations with receipts and thanks that are made personally. Retailers can donate ho- huge amounts and don't require any follow-up. That's true. I'm trying to verify whether or not they get that tax credit like I would if I made a $100 donation to X, Y, or Z. All right, good show today. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.